Successful Coaching and Mentoring, Business Buddies, by Ken Lawson. You're finally holding a responsible position as a manager, and just when you think you've jumped the highest hurdle in your career story to date, you're starting upward at another one, and even higher and more challenging than the others. Uh, number one, what are coaching and mentoring? Number two, obstacles to coaching and mentoring. Number three, benefits to coaching. Number four, benefits to mentoring, coaching to action. And number five, mentoring to action. All right. Um, how to succeed in your job as well as you can and how to manage and motivate others and do the same. Managers do not work alone. As this title implies, they have the responsibility they have the responsibility for overseeing projects and people, but how do managers learn the principles of management? How do they develop the skills they need to be guide their colleagues to report? How do they tap into the potential that will maximize their own job performance and that of others? The key that unlocks the answers to these questions is the process of professional development. Responsible managers, indeed all career minded professionals, need to be lifelong learners. They need to continually develop new skills and competencies and let go of old, outmodel, outmoded ones. And they need to develop increasingly complex approaches to collaboration and organizational efforts. Successful, successful coaching and mentoring provides managers with the tools they need to foster the developmental process that will produce peak performance in the workplace. As a manager, you learn how to identify areas of need and how to prioritize them. You learn the differences between developmental and remedial coaching and gain clarity about the benefits and realities of each. Also, you'll understand the differences between coaching and mentoring. Chapter 1 introduces a scenario that you might very well reflect in your own professional situation. How does a new manager recognize coaching and mentoring needs and pursue strategies to implement meaningful developmental programs? You'll read about the similarities and disparities between these two kinds of professional relationships and learn about the types of professional need that call for one or the other. You'll also get acquainted with the types of people involved in the process, coaches, mentors, and beneficiaries. In Chapter 2, you learn about the potential obstacles of the coaching and mentoring processes, the restraining forces that will impede their successes in developing the potential of coaches and protégés. You learn how to anticipate these roadblocks and drive around them as you move forward with meaningful coaching and mentoring. Chapters 3 and 4 focus on the many benefits of coaching and mentoring for a new manager, for his or her colleagues and reports. You learn how the developmental programs provide positive outcomes to the professionals at both ends of the relationships and, in very tangible ways, to the organizations that sponsor and encourage them. In the last chapters, Describe the nuts and bolts of both processes in a clear, comprehensive language. Learn exactly what goes into a successful coaching and mentoring program, how each unfolds, and what is reasonable to expect each type to accomplish. Successful coaching and mentoring offers valuable guidance for managers who are dedicated to success. In a straightforward, reader-friendly language, it portrays professional development as a prerequisite for peak performance, organizational benefit, and career success. Whatever your position, this guide will provide a wealth of useful insight, tips, and strategies. It's a true source book for lifelong learners. Coaching defined. Overview. Coaching and mentoring are time-honored practices in the workplace, but their function as management tools has grown dramatically in recent years through the three main reasons. The end of the traditional job for life security, the lack of formal apprenticeship programs, and the rise of performance-led culture of employment. The first chapter outlines the main definition of both coaching and mentoring, highlights the main similarities and differences between them, describes some of the characteristics of those people who coach and mentor, outlines the types of employees who can benefit from coaching and mentoring. What is a coach? The term coach is most typically used in a sports context and referred to an individual who is hired to encourage an individual or a team to improve his or her performance. The effectiveness of a coach is usually measurable in the short term or medium term by these concrete results, improved times, more wins, fewer losses, and so on. Although this sporting analogy translates well into business environment, there is one major difference. Company results can only be measured by a straightforward win-lose scenario. A company may win in 
many battles over a year while losing out in other important areas. Even if the company posts negative results, the changes in the way of working or composition of the workplace may yield improved results in two or more years' time. What coaching is deceptively like. Coaching can be easily confused with these other ways of developing people teaching. Although the best teaching is inter interactive, encouraging students to think for themselves, the role of the teacher is mainly active. The teacher instructs and tutors form a set of curriculum that the pupil has to absorb and learn mostly. Until the latter strategies of school without questioning coaching is also instructive, but a coach does not merely prescribe ready solutions. He is there to encourage the individual or, or team to take far more active role and to work out for themselves how to make the best of their abilities. Number two, counseling. Counseling also aims at improving performance, but by digging up often painful and uncomfortable personal issues that are not necessarily linked with work and the workplace. Coaching is not aimed at such long-term and personal intervention in any way. Mentoring. This is the term most commonly confused with coaching, and although they share many similarities, coaching and mentoring have fundamental differences. This book aims to explore the many contrasts between them. For a quick overview, see page 28-31. Basic features of coaching. The following list covers the main functions of coaching. Number one, to set goals. As in sports, a business coach has to start by establishing what the person or people want to achieve in the short, medium, and long term. Without clear goals, it is difficult to decide on a strategy. 2. Examine tactics. Also similar to a sports coach, the person steering a business team has to outline the different options open to reaching the goals. This doesn't mean the coach has the final decision on what tactics are to be used. He can give advice, but the ultimate decision has to come from the individual who is receiving help. 3. Set targets. As a way of seeing that if the tactics chosen are if the tactics chosen are working. Coaching helps to establish small targets to measure whether a strategy is broadly successful. Like the decision on tactics, the coach she should have the final word in the nature and number of targets that are set. Four, to challenge assumptions. If there are certain rules in the business, a coach should make sure that the individual or team is aware of them. But rules also can be broken. Coaching is aimed at questioning working practices, even when the same ones have been followed for a long time. 5. To point out weaknesses. The coach is not providing a proper service if the skirts from the uncomfortable truths. Identifying a coach sheet's weaker points and signaling ways of improving these to minimize their negative effects on overall performance is one major responsibility of a coach. 6. To maximize strengths. As well as to being aware of negative behavior to work patterns that need to be modified, a coach should also accentuate the strengths of each candidate so that the candidate can make the most of his abilities. 7. To provide feedback. A regular review of progress is vital to make sure the appropriate strategy has been followed, to know when significant improvements have been made, and to give employees encouragement and praise to keep developing. Four, to provide focus. Coaching is generally a short-term activity with the exception of executive coaching where a longer time frame is necessary. It also tends to concentrate on specific work-related issues. Therefore, it provides focus on a specific issue. Mentoring defined. What is a mentor? A mentor is typically an older individual with a wealth of experience that chooses or is chosen to help a guide another individual who is normally younger and more importantly, less far less, far less experienced. The owner's to be a role model is far greater than for a mentor than for a coach. When is a mentor needed? Mentors typically work in businesses such as law firm where trained, where inexperienced staff, staff benefit from the knowledge of a senior staff have built up through years of practice. Origins of mentoring. The word mentor originates from character from the Greek mythology when the Greek, when the king of Ithaca, Odysseus, went to fight the Trojan War, he entrusted the household to his old friend mentor. In particular, he asked mentor to serve as teacher and overseer to his son Telemachus. 
what is a protege, also known as a mentee. The term protege refers to the less experienced person who is receiving and benefiting from the acquired wisdom and years of practice to the more experienced individual. What is mentoring effectively like? Teaching. There are many elements of teaching and mentoring, such as the em emphasis on passing knowledge. What mentoring is deceptively like? Teaching. There are many elements of teaching and mentoring, such as the emphasis on passing on knowledge. However, the frequency and flow of information is established equally between mentor and mentee. And mentoring is not a private lesson. The mentor requires far more effort and initiative from the protege than the teacher expects from a student. Two, counseling. Mentoring seems closer to counseling than coaching because mentoring takes a broader view on a protege's concerns rather than a narrow focus on the particular aspects of the job. The longer term nature of the mentoring relationship also requires, like counseling, that both sides establish an open and trusting relationship. However, mentoring in the business world is still focused on career issues rather than personal ones. In addition, both participants are intended to benefit in different ways from the relationship. In contrast, a counselor's job is to focus exclusively on the patient. In order to create a trusting relationship, the mentor needs to stress confidentiality and show respect for the mentee. 3. Sponsoring Mentors are like sponsors in the sense that they create opportunities for the protege that would not normally be open for them. However, sponsors have tangible reasons for helping a mentee, such as raising the mentee's profile and demanding certain results which a given time frame. A mentor's support for a mentee is more altruistic and normally far less self-serving. Most mentors believe they are giving back something for the, to the business community. For coaching. There are many characteristics common to both coaching and mentoring, which is why both terms are often used interchangeably. This is an error. However, there are some basic differences between the two approaches, and these are spelled out on page 28 to 31. Basic features of mentoring. The following list covers the main rules of mentoring. Notice how many share similarities with coaching. Number one, to develop skills. One of the key purposes of coaching and mentor mentoring is to help employees find out more about their ambitions and to hone their skills in the best effect to achieve their goals. Number two, to plan future. Both coaching and mentoring are geared to produce future results, to predict future scenarios, and to look at the different options available to get there. Three, to encourage accountability. Unlike sports coaches who are hired to drum in techniques and strategies at their protégés, business coaches can't dictate the way employees must perform unless they are at a very junior level. Athletes strive to a narrow focus, but business leaders must be, must be able to adapt to circumstances constantly and to change strategies accordingly. They have to learn to think for themselves, not allowing others' footprints or beliefs. Mentors are doing their protégés a disservice by laying down rules and ways of doing things. They should be drawing employees out as much as possible. Both coaches and mentors are there to encourage protégés to become self-reliant and independent. To share, not instruct. It is important to stress that mentoring is not telling the less experienced people how to deal with difficult situations no it is about delivering a template or a set of rules with handling awkward situations it is laying out their own experiences and skills as well as providing a context so that protégés can tackle future difficult situations for themselves to provide a role model more often than not mentors are chosen for their past accomplishments and the way they have pulled through difficult struggles they lead by example and in the case of mentors who are still struggling through the ways they can handle present problems which the protégé can observe Six, focus on goals. By acting as a sounding board for protégés, mentors listen and ask probing questions about short and long-term objectives and ambitions, not just their current employment but in their careers because mentors are not just anxious about the delivery of immediate results. They have more time to encourage their protégés to focus on their ultimate goals. To support, for someone starting out in the business world, no matter how talented or promising, corporate life can be bewildering. A mentor is there to offer a measure of support. Coaching versus mentoring. 
coaching focus. The focus is primarily how to improve issues at work or specific aspects of the job. Mentoring focus. The emphasis is on long-term career. Any discussion of the current job is to put a wider context of future ambitions that are not restricted to the present company or job. Two, coaching time frame. There is typically a fixed period for the relationship. Once the problem has been resolved or the skills passed down, the contract comes to an end. Mentoring time frame. The duration of the relationship is more fluid because the targets are more long-term. There is no specific end point to the relationship. Three, coaching scheduling. The narrow focus of the issue and the time restrictions means that meetings are normally carefully structured. They also tend to be scheduled at regular intervals. Mentoring scheduling. The flexibility of goals and issues at stake are reflected in the informality of meetings. There is greater scope for spontaneity in the meetings. Four, coaching and age experience. The coach does not necessarily have to be an expert in the subject she is coaching, nor does she have to be much more senior in age or overall experience. Mentoring age experience. Mentor, mentors are mainly chosen for their expertise and knowledge in a given field. Inevitably, this means that the mentor will be far more qualified than the protege. Coaching agenda. The need is to achieve an intermediate, immediate specific goal set the agenda sets the agenda. The objectives are often set by management, not by the employee. Mentoring agenda. The agenda is looser because it looks to long-term gains. The mentee sets the agenda. Coaching force or voluntary. Coaches are often forced upon employees, especially if the coach's responsibility is to raise the performance of an entire team. Mentoring force or voluntary. The employees specifically seek out mentors. It is crucial that proteges are actively receptive to guidance. Coaching payment. Many coaches, if they are external, receive a fee and teach staff new skills or work to improve a particular situation. Mentoring payment. Mentors almost always provide proteges with advice and guidance out of goodwill and out of duty and gratitude to spread what they have learned through the generous nature of intervention of others. Types of coaching. Coaching is available in many forms and is paid for either by the employer, which is the most typical scenario in big companies, or by an individual in the case of a small business. Team coaching, number one, as in sports, the business team produces the best results when all the members are working toward a similar goal and agree with the methods and approaches required to achieve their targets. Team coaching focuses on creating a shared vision and working collaboratively. Two, performance coaching. As the title suggests, this type of coaching focuses on improving the performance that can be applied either to an individual or to a team. Three, skills coaching. This type of coaching has more narrow focus. A certain set of skills has been identified as lacking or not to set up to a standard as part of an earlier round of a more general coaching. Four, career coaching. Career coaching focuses on the individual's concern about how to develop his career. Unlike mentoring, with which it shares many characteristics, it can be restricted to a few sessions aimed at providing general pointers. Five, business coaching. The onus with business coaching is less on the needs of the ambitions of an individual and more on the objectives of a particular business or company. Six, life coaching. Life coaching, as the name suggests, encompasses all aspects of an individual's life. Although it is not strictly limited to workplace issues, personal ambitions and frustrations do spill out into the business life, and for that reason, it is included in this section. The most relevant questions asked by a life coach to business include, why am I always late for deadlines? Why is really what, what is really motivating me at work? What other job I like? Like to be doing if I had a choice and what would I like to be doing in five years time seven executive coaching this one-on-one -on -one focus in generally is the most senior personnel is becoming increasingly popular training managers more often than not involves general external coaches or consultants 
Hey, distance coaching. This type of coaching refers more to the methods used to coach rather than to specific type of training involved. Distance coaching describes coaching to receive at a distance, whether via the telephone, email, instant messaging, or video conferencing. Distance coaching can be applied to an individual or a group. Types of mentoring. There are three basic types of mentoring relationships. One, formal mentoring. Formal mentoring is fostered by companies that deliberately assign senior managers or directors or oversee a certain individual who they think will most benefit from guidance. This is the modern-day equivalent of an apprenticeship, which was so common 100 years ago but would face considerable strains in the more fast-paced and competitive environment of businesses today. However, as the high popularity of TV shows such as The Apprentice reveal young, enthusiastic people who are starting out in business crave wisdom and experience of a senior individual who has their interests at heart, this is particularly the case in today's business environment where employees change companies and even professions frequently. There are fewer available senior personnel with the time and commitment to share their experience. Formal mentoring is also referred to as planned mentoring because it has literally been devised and arranged by the company. The formality of the arrangement may mean that the mentor and mentee restrict their relationship to the office and to the company. This contrasts with informal mentoring. Informal mentoring. Informal mentoring matches with an experienced individual with an inexperienced person. These cases cover experienced individuals who like passing on their knowledge and a single out a few individuals who they think will be receptive and inexperienced employees who make a point of seeking out a senior colleague for advice. As this type of mentoring is not enforced by the company, both mentor and protege have to be committed to the process and enjoy a collaboration. As long as the relationship lasts, the two members must believe they are not being forced in each other's company and they need to take each other's time seriously. These relationships don't necessarily have to be formed with the same company or even the same sector. It is not unusual or infor- for, for informal mentoring to take place in a company where formal mentoring is also encouraged. They can also coexist quite happily. 3. Self-mentoring. Calling for high levels of motivation and self-discipline. Self-mentoring requires mentees to develop their careers through self-tutoring tasks and courses and through extensive networking. It is most successful when the person has already been mentored before or is highly aware of the best ways to approach mentoring. Who coaches? There are two main types of coaches. Most companies use a mixture of both. Internal coaching. A growing number of managers are being encouraged to act as coaches for their staff in spite of their reluctance by some some to see training and development of employees as anything other than peripheral peripheral to the activity of focusing on achieving tangible results for the company. Apart from senior managers, internal coaches can also be colleagues, peers, line managers, or members of the human resources department. When is it best to use them? When you need coaching to happen urgently, hiring external experts can be time-consuming during a crisis. Two, when you want to cut costs, consultants can be expensive. Ask yourself whether some of the managers are qualified to do the same job. Three, when it's necessary for the coach to have a clear understanding of the company's culture and politics. Four, when you want to build a high level of personal trust over a long time. This is more likely when you have a director inside the company. Who coaches? External coaches. These coaches are often especially trained to impart information about developing people's skills and may even be used to contribute in training managers to become more effective coaches. One, when it... When the issue needs to be improved by the company and it is very specific, there is no senior member or staff with the requisite experience expertise. Hiring a professional to coach one or more managers ensures that the skills are needed are brought into the company. Two, when the information you need to introduce is rather sensitive and you anticipate a heated response from employees, an outsider may not face such critical response or will be able to respond to criticism much more objectively. Three, when senior managers are too busy firefighting at the time they spend coaching will be better used attending to critical operational manners. matters. Who mentors? 
because mentoring can be both formal and informal, so the types of mentors and their qualifications can vary widely. These are some of the most common types of mentors. Number one, friends and family. These represent the most informal mentoring relationships, but they still need to demonstrate commitment and consistency on both sides. Particularly in the case of relatives where they can be histories of personal conflict, these relationships need to strive for as much objectivity as possible and not bring unrelated topics into the main discussion. The focus of any discussion should be about developing a career path. With a friend as a mentor, with care must be taken to keep the relationship balanced. A friend must not think her time or expertise are being taken for granted. Two, senior personnel. Directors within your company that you seek out don't necessarily have to be at the most senior levels, but they should have considerably, considerably more experiences of business life than you do. The most beneficial mentors will be the ones that protege admires for a particular achievement or style of working because the motivation to listen and learn from will deem will be the most higher. Three, directors in your sector. If protégés are fine discussing their future careers with protégés too sensitive, then a common option is to refer to senior directors in rival companies. Clearly, in this scenario, confidentiality, confidentiality might become an issue, so there must be a high level of trust on all sides. Who needs coaching? Directors in other sectors. Often, directors who work in a, in a completely different sector can provide as much insight and advice in your career as someone inside your sector. The principles of goal-setting, listening, asking questions remain the same. Industry analysts and consultants. Although many mentors are happy to impart their knowledge and experience for free, there is a growing industry of analysts and consultants who will impart useful information and guidance for a fee. Retired executives. Score. The Service Corp of Retired Executives offers entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs free mentoring and workshops at, a, at hundreds of local offices across the United States. The service provides an online database of their mentors who can be contacted via email. Retired Executives Score. Score. Service Corp of Retired Executives. You know, I've got to look that up. Professional Associates. Also, another note. Um, if I can read a book in a day, in an hour, then I can write a book probably in a couple of hours so take that into consideration whenever i'm reading seven professional associations professional associations or trade bodies within your sector are likely to offer some sort of mentoring program who needs coaching most people in the workplace receive some sort of coaching during their careers even if it is only for a limited time everyone stands to benefit from effective coaching and core and more advanced skills at different times the most common recipients of coaching tend to be junior and middle managers the following are situations where coaching is typically valuable Number one, shortage of talent. When companies are facing a skills shortage for whatever reason, they may be better off developing the skills of current employees through coaching sessions than on recruiting external candidates. This is more of a cost-effective option in the long term, although the cost of hiring in a coach can be high one-off expense. Two, starting up a business. When a small group of people start a company, they might find they are doing several jobs at once and are not particularly qualified for some of them. A few coaching sessions on some basic skills can help. Three, structural changes. When a company is being merged with another art during a period of massive layoffs, there will be some staff expected to cover new areas of expertise, which they are not prepared. Coaching can help them to gain better understanding of these roles. Four, new recruits. Whether they are graduates or higher level executives, new arrivals in a company usually benefit from a short period of a specific coaching on certain skills and tasks. All companies work differently and new recruits need to be told how this particular company works. Five, fast crackers. Although it is difficult to show favoritism in the workplace, there are inevitably, inevitably going to be certain middle managements who are being singled out for a fast track promotion. These managers may require extra coaching so they can keep up with fast rising careers. Six, 
senior executives, even the oldest and most experienced directors in a company benefit from coaching, particularly if they have earmarked areas of expertise that they feel they are lacking. 7. Poor performers. Before blaming poor performance or disappointing results on employees, managers should look critically at the support of the company has given them and whether performance should have been improved with more coaching and training. 8. Users of new technology. Rapidly changing computing and telecommunication systems means that employees must be coached on a regular basis on how to make the most out of their new technology. Who needs mentoring? Most workers will benefit from the care, consideration, and attention to detail that formal or informal mentoring can provide for career development. However, a list of types of employees and working situations that most commonly demonstrate an urgent need for mentoring follows. Number one, new company hires. By virtue of being newcomers to a company, new hires are always high on the list of workers who stand to benefit from a mentor, even if this is only for a settling in period of between these two to three through three to six months. Showing the ropes to new hires help them to hit the ground running, producing their best work in the shortest time. Two, new department. Go to the uh, thrift store today and get like some books on money if they have any. Two, new departmental hires. These candidates already have may have already worked in the company for some time but may have been transferred to a new department or division who would benefit from being shown the ropes in the new area. Three, high potential employees. Inevitably, even in companies who strive to provide all employees with equal opportunities, these there are going to be certain candidates who stand out from the pack. These employees are believed to have high potential for rapid promotion, so senior management will want to mentor them to make sure they can fulfill their potential. The expectation is that through mentoring, their needs and aspirations will be catered to within the company to prevent them from being poached by a competitor. Low-achieving employees. Employees who are not performing to the best of their abilities are also candidates for some mentoring. This is particularly the case when managers perceive that these employees have potential and that they have a, they are hard workers but that their efforts are not yielding results. Mentoring can help them find out what is stopping them from reaching their potential. Even with more problematic candidates who are less willing to improve their performance, some mentoring may be easier than dismissing them to avoid any legal battles and to save costs on future recruitment, which could be avoided. Five. People on career breaks. With career breaks becoming more common as people strive to balance work interests with life goals, there is a need to ensure that people coming back to a company after six months to a year away fit in smoothly again and are brought up to speed on new developments. This also applies to women and men who have taken time away from the workplace to stay home raising their babies and small children. 6. Motivated staff. There are a small group of employees who may not necessarily have been pinpointed as future leaders to the company, but who are nevertheless ambitious to improve. These individuals may request a mentor by their own initiative. The new manager, who is he? The new manager is a prime candidate for both coaching and mentoring. He is typically a highly effective worker who is promoted within the company thanks to his technical expertise and his potential for leadership. Case study. Brad Turner has been appointed as director at a multinational hotel in a major business destination. For the last three years as a sales executive, Brad has garnered an, ex an ex impressive track record of sales of rooms to visiting businessmen and women, conference and meeting spaces for local and regional companies, and catering dining gatherings for companies. His new challenge, Brad's job is to lead a team of executives, most of whom were doing his same job just a month ago, to create an annual budget and ensure the team sticks to it, and to monitor that customers are satisfied with the product.
coaching needs, how to set targets. In the last three years, Brad's primary concern has been to reach his sales objectives according to targets set by the former director of sales. Now he has to set the targets not only for himself but for the whole team, how to budget. Until now, Brad has never had to worry about the size of the company budget unless it directly affected the amount he was able to spend on expenses or on the sales target of the month. As a new manager, he must create an annual budget to track it monthly. For this, he will have to liaise closely with the finance department. How to promote the company. As a sales executive, Brad was an excellent communicator of the benefits of the hotel of, over the competition. With his new capacity, he will no longer be able to rely on his own efforts to promote the hotel. He needs to oversee an official strategy that involves marketing, advertising, and special promotions. Mentoring needs. To show leadership qualities. While skills such as working out budgets and masterminding a publicly camp public publicity campaign or skills that Brad can in principle learn after a few design sessions. Working on leadership issues is a more complex and long-term challenge that demands a patient and persistent guide to handle difficult people. As a self-starter with a cheerful, positive attitude, Brad has never found it difficult to motivate himself to improve his performance. As manager, he has to motivate others, and that can be difficult when it may no longer be appropriate to maintain the same level of friendly informality with former colleagues. Some workers will be difficult to handle. To deal with complex interpersonal relations, Brad is best served referring to regular advice from an experienced and trusted mentor. Checklist. When to coach slash mentor. What situations are most relevant to coaching? Number one. Downsizing. When a company is laying off workers, the employees who remain may have to take on new responsibilities. Check. Special assignments. When a worker is giving special projects on assignments, this could demand learning new skills. Check. Three. New product service launch. When a company is launching a new service or product, employees may require coaching to understand it and pass information to clients. Check. Four. Performance review. During a, during a review, skills a worker needs to acquire or to develop must be identified. Check. Five. Industry-wide change. When a new technology is introduced, workers have to catch up quickly. Check. What situations are most relevant to mentoring? One, starting out. Steering a particular important steering is particular important is particularly important for interns or trainees so that both employee and employer maximize the beginner's new raw talents. Check. Two, returning after a long absence. When employees return to a company after pregnancy, illness, or a study leave, they need to they need guidance on current practices in today's fast-moving world. Check. Three, doubting direction. When a person is having doubts, it can help to talk to a trusted mentor in confidence. Check. Four, changing direction. When a person has decided that course of action to take, it is good to seek advice from an experienced mentor outside of the company. Check. Five, assuming a senior post. A new senior manager may need advice on assignments, expectations, and leadership skills. Check. Chapter two, obstacles to coaching and mentoring. Obstacles to coaching and mentoring. Corporate obstacles. This chapter outlines the three main obstacles to the formal practice of coaching and mentoring in the workplace. It is vital to understand these sources of resistance to be able to overcome them. They are corporate barriers to the benefits of coaching. Number one, a manager's own prejudices and mistrust about coaching. Number two, and number three, the other's employees' colleagues' skepticism of coaching. Obstacles by the company. The following are the most typical reasons why companies fight the need to devote time and resources to coaching and mentoring. One, lack of time. By far the most prevailing reason given by the companies for not embarking on coaching are encapsulated in the phrases no time or not the right time. Ironically, if senior management or the main decision makers in the company are too busy firefighting to pay attention to coaching, it means there are some fundamental time management problems in the company that need to be tackled. Coaching people to use their time more effectively could reverse this chaotic pattern or behavior. 2. Lack of resources. Competing with time restrictions as factors for not coaching or mentoring is lack of funds. However, a company that has not budgeted for any 
of the mid to long-term benefits of coaching for the sake of obtaining some short-term gains may find that it is missing opportunities to improving revenue flows. And number three, lack of understanding. When, it, when the exact benefits of coaching a team of, or focusing on an individual are misunderstood, then it is difficult to persuade senior executives to embark on activities that are not linked to the core business of the company. Coaching must be seen as a fundamental part of the manager's responsibilities, occupying a main role in the company rather than a tacked-on duty or pastime. Inertia, number four. When a company has chugged along for several years with no coaching or mentoring practices in place, old ways of doing things become deeply entrenched. People dislike having new ways of looking at their business through a mixture of laziness and fear of how changes may affect their roles in the company. Five, autocratic tendencies. Although vertical structures are less pre pre prevalent in big companies than they were two or three decades ago, there are still many organizations, even smaller businesses, that have a defined group of leaders who insist on stamping their own ways of doing things for the rest of the staff. Coaching in these scenarios, because it brings directors and employees together, can be viewed by some managers as a threat. Six, fear of asking questions. Companies that are run in the more traditional paternalistic lines also resist coaching practices because they imply that these, there are maybe something wrong with existing methods and raise questions of past decisions. Directors of these kinds of businesses may also think that if they hire the appropriate staff, then these people won't need any further training or mentoring or tutoring. Six, a manager's own obstacles. When a company shows resistance to introducing formal coaching structures, it is not surprising that managers adopt these same prejudices. There are some of the most common reasons why managers distrust coaching and mentoring. And we'll look at that on the next segment. Managers own obstacles. When a company shows resistance to introducing formal coaching structures, it is not surprising that managers adopt these same prejudices. These are some of the most common reasons why managers distrust, distrust coaching and mentoring. Number one, extra responsibility. Unless managers are themselves sold on the benefits of coaching, they may assume that having to implement a coaching program will eat into their own time without reaping immediate benefits on their resources. They can also begrudge having to take on extra responsibilities that are not part of their formal job description. Providing direction and assessing where employees need to change working patterns is integral to a manager's role, not an additional activity. Number two, lack of experience. Typically, managers resistant to coaching have themselves never received any formal coaching, so they can think how they don't have the background and know how to either coach or staff themselves or to go about finding appropriate coaches. And number three, lack of support. As outlined in the corporate obstacle section, working within a company structure that does not encourage coaching and mentoring makes it doubly difficult to introduce these practices. The manager is fighting two battles at once, persuading employees of the benefits of themselves and at the same time getting the support of senior management for the introduction of these practices and managers own obstacles Four, a fear of staff receptions a fear of staff resistance even managers who can see the benefits of coaching for their staff may anticipate widespread antipathy to the practice of by employees they may assure they may assume that if subordinates or colleagues haven't asked for extra training or guidance, they don't need it. However, it is the manager's responsibility to provide direction and to be aware of areas in which staff needs to improve. Five, hands-on approach. Managers who are self-starters and are clear about their goals can wrongly assume that other staff have the same capacity for initiative. It is precisely when bosses don't provide much guidance that staff is not receiving much direct supervision will most benefit from coaching. Six, fear of loss of control. Some managers may be wary of coaching and mentoring. These managers fear that subordinates will grasp the opportunity of closer contact on self-development issues to air their grievances about their jobs and perhaps about their manager's management style. Seven, 
lack of confidence. Managers may be excellent at strategic thinking or at achieving concrete results such as growth or sales revenue, but still lack confidence in their personal skills. They might perceive coaching as exposing their inadequacy or dealing with other people. Staff obstacles. Colleges colleagues and subordinates have their own set of reasons for resisting coaching and mentoring. These include the following. Number one, lack of goals. Employees will find it very hard to buy into the idea of taking time out of their already busy schedules to be coached in specific tasks unless they can see for themselves how this activity will help them in the long run. To understand the values of coaching, they need some sort of goal or objective, however incidental or trivial. Number two, lack of role models. Employees who are being encouraged to improve certain aspects of their work will only truly respond if they can see that senior management is making any necessary adjustments however otherwise any time spent on coaching will ultimately be seen as time wasting activity three lack of time assuming that employees are persuaded that time devoted to being coached will be beneficial they need to feel that management is taking into account their schedules without acknowledging these time constraints management can make little progress with coaching sessions employees need to believe that they have the right to attend these coaching periods without worrying about not carrying out other activities that would normally be completed during these times Managers need to show their staff that they have made contingency plans such as hiring a temporary worker or changing a deadline to accommodate them during coaching sessions. 4. Fear of exposure just as managers fear that questions raised during coaching sessions can undermine their authority or way of doing things, so employees may be wary of how coaching sessions will serve to highlight any of their deficiencies or weaknesses. It is the responsibility of the manager or coach in charge of training or tutoring to underline that any coaching is available to help people improve, not to find fault. 5. Lack of communication. Employees who don't feel senior management is listening to their needs will also be typically resistant to any coaching because they will resent time spent on activities that are not relevant to their concerns. Managers need to listen and evaluate their personal concerns before imposing any coaching. The best way is to tailor any coaching or mentoring to what their employees want to get out of these sessions. This means actively listening to them and asking the right questions to get the right answers. Six, lack of initiative. Staff who are overly depending on their managers to carry out activities and reach targets are right for coaching. Their lack of initiative may stem from various sources, including lack of self-confidence, laziness, and lack of encouragement. The idea of coaching can be frightening to these individuals because they can be forced to make decisions and to come up with their own solutions. Seven, peer pressure. Change is always unsettling, both in large companies and in smaller businesses. Individuals who respond positively to new ideas and new suggestions about their work may encounter pressure from more skeptical colleagues who aren't interested in changing their ways and possibly fear that they stand to lose by change. Checklist. Identifying obstacles. To introduce the act of coaching and mentoring, you have to identify your biggest obstacles. Answer yes or no to the following questions to find out how aware you are of these barriers. Number one. Do you know what your company's attitude is regarding devoting time to coaching? Check. Uh, no. Does your company have a budget for coaching or mentoring? I don't know. Are there successful employees, examples of coaching practices in your company that you could use as a model of your skeptical staff? I don't know yet. Do you feel confident about taking t talking about the benefits of coaching to your senior management? Not yet. Do you feel capable of identifying areas in your business where coaching will be most beneficial? Yes. Are you aware of your colleagues' attitudes to coaching? No. Do you listen to people's concerns about self-development? Yes. Can you think of ways to juggle activities at work that will open up more time for coaching sessions? Not yet. Are you able to communicate the benefits of certain coaching sessions to your subordinates? Yes. Do you invite suggestions about current, work, current working practices? 
Um, not yet. Do you trust your staff and invite initiative? Not yet. Do you like shaking things up at work? Yes. Benefits for the company. Number one, in-house training. The majority of coaching is done in-house and even if carried out by consultants, it takes place in the workplace. This avoids the disruptions and inconvenience caused by staff being away to attend the courses. It also means that coaches can use real working situations to try out in new techniques. Benefits for the company. Number two, improve results. The better prepared a workforce is and the happier they feel with their own personal development, the greater chances that they will perform to their full potential and achieve greater results for the company. Benefits for the company. Three, money saving. Effective coaching not only can yield better results, but it can also help staff discover where they may be wasting too much time on unprofitable activities or iron out obstacles that are standing in the way of improved results. The bottom line can be significantly affected by a carefully targeted coaching program benefits for the company number four soft introduction to changes constant change is a part of today's business environment yet many employees find it difficult to navigate through uncharted waters coaching however can provide some assurance during difficult times by preparing staff for change if coaching uh, takes place well before any major changes then it gives staff sufficient time to work through many of the typical reactions denial resistance rejection and acceptance that may take place during a period of for example downsizing or expansion benefits for the company five isolation at the top senior executives can feel isolated and unsupported when they are the ones making sure the rest of the staff are nurtured executive coaching geared specifically toward top directors can provide them with a sounding board where they can explore some of their thoughts and fears Benefits for the company. Six, for rising stars. Inevitably, there will always be certain employees who are rising through the ranks faster than others and to prepare them for early promotion or new challenges, a period of intense coaching may be necessary. It also shows that the company appreciates and is keen to develop these high flyers. Benefits for the company. Number seven. To technic for technically skilled, there are also many specialists in a company who need to be aware of any technological developments and they are likely to require more periods of coaching in new systems than the average employee. Benefits for the company. Eight. For improvers, there are also the employees in the company who may not be achieving their potential or in worst case scenarios, they are simply not pulling their weight. A period of coaching can help them identify why they are failing to produce the results expected of them and what they have to do in order to improve their performance. Benefits for managers. The following are common advantages for coaching for managers, many of whom will be acting as coaches. One, one improved performance. Effective coaching is aimed at bringing out the best managers. Being a better leader can result in a more committed and productive workforce and further improvements in performance. Benefits for managers. Two, better relationships. By understanding more about their own roles as coaches as well as their own roles as directors, leaders can learn to improve relations with colleagues and subordinates. Benefits for managers. Three, improved time management. Coaching can help a manager identify what tasks and responsibilities could be passed on for to the most responsible and able employees. Delegating work can free up time for other urgent and core activities. Benefit number four, more creativity. By challenging established working practices, coaching can also unleash creativity in the workplace. Coaches encourage managers to experiment with ideas, to think outside the box, and to talk through any potential changes with senior management. Benefits for managers. Five, better use of people. Many managers may be good at their particular job but are blind to some of the experience and potential of their employees. Through coaching, they can develop leadership skills that make them more aware of their employees' skills and expertise. Benefits number six, 
Ability to adapt benefits for managers. Six, ability to adapt to change. Flexibility and adaptability to change are necessary requisites in a fast evolving workplace and the coaching can help managers become more responsible to change and to make and implement the right decisions in a timely fashion. Benefits for managers. Seven, positive work culture. A positive a workforce that believes that their needs and objectives are being considered is more likely to be satisfied at work, creating a positive work environment. Eight, star personnel. The highest achievers will always end up seeking promotion, if not within the company, then elsewhere. But you can try to stave off their moment or the, of departure if you provide coaching opportunities that are tailored to their needs. Benefits for managers. Nine, unproductive workers. There are inevitably going to be some troublemakers in an office or at least some candidates who are not reaching their potential. A manager's responsibility is to get the best out of his or her workforce. And coaching can present one way of motivating these workers to improve their performance. Benefits for new managers. New managers, such as Brad Turner, see, in particular, benefit hugely from receiving coaching on the following four skills. Benefits for new managers. Number one, how to control finances. Controlling the finances of a department or unit is one of the crucial tasks of a new manager like Brad Turner, but it is likely that he has never before been directly involved with the process. The finance department or the accountancy team can impart basic information through a series of coaching sessions on the following fundamental aspects of finance. Accountancy rules, balance sheets, cash flow statements, and income statements. The most important skill for Brad will be how to set an annual budget and how to monitor it during the year, knowing that monthly targets are likely to fluctuate. Benefits for new managers. Number two, how to manage a project. Brad may feel under pressure to show both his superiors and his subordinates that he is doing something, or he may be too busy firefighting to set time aside to plan a project. However, managing a project effectively is one of the most useful skills Brad can learn. New managers who underestimate the importance of a plan can find themselves reacting too late to a change in the market or an aggressive move by a competitor. Those who plan are far more proactive. A project forces them to co-op concentrate on what is important. Benefits for new managers. Number three, how to make decisions. Decision making is not a skill that a manager necessarily has by instinct. It is a skill that can be taught by senior managers with greater experience of making decisions. Brad can be taught how to define a problem or set up problems more carefully. He can also be shown the different techniques generally available for coming up with alternative solutions to a problem, such as a Pareto analysis, six thinking hats, and decision trees. Finally, he can be shown the importance of selling the final decision to the team to make sure that the decision is actually carried out. Benefits for new managers. Number four, how to communicate. A new manager like Brad may have the best ideas and intentions in the world, but if he is unable to communicate these to his colleagues and subordinates, these have little chance of succeeding. A coaching session on effective communication can help a manager to communicate clearly with his team. Skills covered include how to listen, how to exchange ideas, feelings, and values, how to decide what information to relay and in what order, how to use nonverbal signals to emphasize messages, and how to provide feedback. The reason for reading so much is because I want to find a niche that I enjoy reading about, learning about, and then applying to myself, and then uh, teaching. So uh, that's the reason for all this reading that I'm doing. All right, benefits for coaches. Employees and coaches, the individuals receiving coaching can enjoy several benefits from coaching. Number one, personally tailored program. Coaching can be flexible and tailored specifically to an individual's needs and preferred learning style. Benefits for coaches, two. 
easy delivery. Coaching can also be planned around an individual schedule and can be incorporated into an employee's schedule for times when he will be most receptive to the challenge. Benefits to coaches, three, focus on real work problems. Unlike many development courses that can be too general or not focus on real working problems, a coaching program can concentrate on an individual's real work situation. The coach can help the employee develop solutions. Benefits for coaches, four, time saving. Instead of having to attend seminars or conferences on general topics, the learning possible through coaching can take place on the everyday office environment, saving an employee with a heavy work schedule considerable time. Benefits for coaches, for coaches, uh, a change in behavior. Coaching helps individuals look at their work patterns and evaluate how effective they are being. The coaching process can highlight ideas that require attention and possibly areas in which changing behavior and working methods and part patterns is needed. I put my pants up because Jamie Foxx said that uh, you got to stay silly in order to be funny. Uh, <laughs> if you're trying to be too serious in your life, then you're not going to be funny. Benefits of coaches continued. Six, goal setting. Coaching forces employees to consider what they really want to do and to find out what tasks they must complete to achieve their objectives. Even if employees can't think of definite goals or at least not long-term ones, the process of introspection and analysis offered by coaching can at least point them in one direction. Benefits for coaches, seven, better decision-making. The ability to make good decisions is often about developing a clear focus and the single-mindedness can often be provided by coaching. Benefits for coaches. Eight, recognition. Some employees may think they have been neglected by supervisors or some of their peers, and coaching can help to highlight their achievements and make them feel recognized. Benefits for coaches. Nine, courage. Coaching can help identify an employee's strengths and give a worker the courage to seek out more challenging and responsible work. This benefits the individual's own development and also the company who can eventually promote the employee to a more senior role instead of spending more money on recruiting staff. Benefits for coaches, number 10, more balanced life. Coaching encourages employees to delve into their professional goals and see how compatible these will be with their personal goals. The end result can be that they manage to achieve a better work-life balance, which will ultimately benefit performance at work. Checklist, do we need coaching? If you check the majority of these boxes, your company will benefit from setting up a coaching program. One, we do not have potential coaches on site. I'm not sure. Two, we need to improve our results. That's for sure. Three, we have staff spending too much time on unprofitable tasks. Yes. Four, we are planning big changes. Yes. Five, we have several senior executives who have indicated that they feel unsupported. Yeah. Six, we have several young people with the ability to go far. Yes. Seven, we are operating in a high technology sector. Yes. Eight, we have several people who are currently underperforming. Yes. Benefits of mentoring. Benefits for companies. This chapter outlines the main benefits of mentoring to companies, managers, mentors, and mentees. Number one, to raise productivity. Improving staff's understanding of the roles and unleashing their potential through mentoring can help staff improve their performance, which translates into greater productivity. Benefits for companies. Two, to ensure continuity. Because managers move on from job to job more often, there is also less potential in companies for senior directors to pass on all their valuable experiences in the company to younger staff. Mentoring can provide an opportunity to pass on values, ethics, and standards. More companies are implementing formal mentoring programs to ensure this handover of knowledge takes place. Benefits for companies. Three, manage change. 
Change of management styles, personnel, and company culture are more frequent today in an increasing competitive market where mergers and acquisitions are common. Guiding personnel during these difficult periods ensures a smooth and passage as possible and prepares them to be flexible during the transition period. Four, benefits for companies. Four, to integrate new recruits. Mentoring is also beneficial for new employees who need a special guidance and direction in their first few months at a new job. Managers save time and money in the long run with careful supervision of new recruits. Benefits for companies. Five, to retain qualified employees. The fast trackers are likely to be tempted by new opportunities, but mentoring them to help them acquire new skills or expand their horizons within the company can encourage them to stay on because they feel appreciated and their needs are being indulged. Benefits for the company. Six, to develop leadership style. More managers are seeing the benefits of training staff to help productivity at work, but also develop their leadership skills. The practice of mentoring involves developing people skills through example and guided practice. Mentoring raises the skills bar across the company. Benefits for companies. Number seven, to understand staff. By mentoring junior staff, managers can obtain greater understanding of the challenges facing those working in the lower levels of the company. Benefits for companies. Eight, to instill loyalty. Companies that organize mentoring relationships or at least encourage staff to seek them out, they are being product proactive about their staff development. And this promotes a strong sense of loyalty and satisfaction. I am also, every time I'm reading, I read more. I improve my reading ability. Benefits for companies. Number nine, to correct deficiencies. Mentoring can highlight any gaping holes in employees' knowledge and skills and attempt to rectify these deficiencies which will work otherwise remain unnoticed. Benefits for mentors. Although there are major elements of generosity and selflessness in mentors' relationships with protégés, it is too simplistic to characterize them as merely one-sided. Certainly, senior directors who have reached the top of their careers may not make any professional or material gains by guiding an experienced individual, but there are a number of valuable benefits to their relationships. In fact, if mentors don't derive positive feelings from mentoring, the process would end fairly rapidly. These are some of the main benefits of mentors. Number one, the right uh, benefits for mentors, derive personal satisfaction. There is considerable pleasure in seeing a promising talent blossom under a mentorship, particularly when the mentor has contributed indirectly to many of the decisions made on career paths and goals. Benefits for mentors. Two, make sense of past events. By working on current challenges by using past and often difficult experiences, a mentor is forced to reflect on previous performances and to understand more about past events and decisions. And three, you gain insight into the present. Many older managers who spend a lot of time with their peers, the majority in the same generation, and outside of the main office, it is a refreshing and often enlightening experience to gain an insight into the day-to-day -day lives of younger workers, finding out more about new practices and technologies, which they are not up to speed on because of their other senior responsibilities, may also help them make better managers in the future. Benefits for mentors. Four. To give something back. Mentoring younger people can give busy professionals at the peaks of their careers a rare opportunity to give something back to the industry or business that has given them so much. Benefits for mentors. Five, make new friends. Just as the mentee finds that many doors often professionally through effective mentoring experience, such as a mentor, has a chance of making new friends and acquaintances and undergoing new experiences. Benefits number six, benefits for mentors, six, improve self-image. The best mentors are greatly admired and respected for their vision and competence, and this can only further enhance a mentor's self-image. Benefits for mentors, seven, achieve public recognition. 
even more senior directors who have achieved a lot need recognition and they have they may not be receiving praise so often from their peers because everyone expects them to perform well mentoring however offers younger people a chance to respect and admire their mentors benefits for mentors eight self-help help self the old adage that those who help others help themselves is very apt for a mentor because there are many positive outcomes from guiding others successfully, such as a sense of pride. Benefits for mentees. Employees and protégés. Mentees have a lot to gain from a mentoring relationship. The gains include the following. 1. Developing own career. With the end of job for life, security, and increasing number of career changes, people have to learn to become more adept at managing their own careers. Mentors, both within the company and different sectors, can provide a wide range of advice and expertise. A self-starting attitude is important to seek out the right mentors. Benefits for mentees. Two, building confidence. One of the main responsibilities of the mentor is to raise a mentee's self-esteem and to push her to tackle assignments that are beyond her typical remit or experience. Benefits for mentees. Three, learning by example. Mentoring provides the protege with a role model and sounding board, enabling him to develop new skills and approaches to challenges. In the best mentoring relationships, many different approaches to problems are discussed and, opt and options considered and narrowed down. Approaches that may be new to mentor or mentee can benefit both in the long run. My mouth is getting dry. I think it's time for water and tea and a little break. But let me finish this chapter real quick. All right, four, integrating effectively. For a young graduate or a new employee who has made a recent career move, mentoring enables a smoother transition into the workforce. A mentor can help inexperienced workers grapple with any unrealistic expectations they had of the company and the sector. Benefits for mentees. Five, expanding opportunities for women, minorities. Although the rights of women and minorities have grown significantly at work in the last decade, these groups still perceive they can be hampered by a lack of networking opportunities. Mentoring attempts to fill these perceived gaps in some companies by acknowledging that people of different genders and different backgrounds may need a different approach to their careers. Six, tackling challenging work. Mentoring means that employees can be taught or encouraging to attempt more challenging and interesting work. They do so because mentors work on their self-esteem and instill confidence to try things out. Benefits for mentees. Seven, encouraging work from home. Technological advances have made work from home possible. For managers to work and ensure that employees working from home can work just as effectively, efficiently in an office, mentoring is necessary, not just for the initial training, but as a way of maintaining communication with the head office. Benefits for mentees. Eight, complementing study theory. Learning from the experience of others complements ongoing formal study and training. Benefits for mentees. Nine, developing new networks. By having access to a new range of potential contacts made available by the mentor, the protege has the possibility of opening doors that she didn't know existed or of widening her perspectives. Benefit for new managers. On the next segment. Coaching in action, number five. Assessing the coachee. This chapter looks at the main responsibilities of coaching. It begins with a description of the four main coaching stages. Number one, assessing the coachee. Number two, establishing rules of the coaching session, ground rules. Number three, putting coaching skills into action. And number four, reviewing results. So number one, assessing the coachee. Number two, establishing ground rules for the session. Number three, putting coaching skills into action. And number four, reviewing results. Coachee assessment. 
Determining whether the coaching is developmental, for example, an employee has requested a specific type of coaching or remedial, for example, the manager or the employee have identified certain areas that an employee needs coaching on to improve skill level and performance. The first stage is that a manager must thoroughly assess the coach's current skills and ways of working. There are several steps to take in order to do this efficiently and effectively. Number one. Direct observation. As a manager, you will try to pay particular attention to the employee's working patterns for at least a week and jot down your observations. Try to be as objective as possible and do not allow for other people's perceptions to cloud your way of looking at current working practices. Number two, analyze results. Look at any quantifiable way of assessing the coach's work. If any, if in sales, for instance, has the person re reached or exceeded sales targets? If in, if in service, if in a service industry, what is the client feedback on the coach he like? Three, listen to feedback. Discuss the employee with colleagues and direct supervisors. You can gather opinions both from people who supervise the potential coach he and from the people who possibly work for the coach he. Make sure that you don't take all their opinions literally and try to understand the reasons some people have for appreciating or negatively criticizing the coach he. Some people, some colleagues may be envious of the employee or merely be venting their own frustrations with their work by focusing on another, another colleague. Number four, return to observation. Having done additional research, it could be useful to return to the observation stage just for one or two days to see if you look at employees' working practices in a new light. Five, make a list. Once you have completed your research, you can make a list of positive and negative qualities of the coach and identify some areas that will improve with coaching. Six, review timetable. Look at your diary and decide on a realistic time frame for the potential coaching session. See who is available to do the coaching. Will it be you directly or, or will it be a trusted colleague who has already tackled a similar problem? Establishing ground rules. You are now ready to take the next steps in the coaching cycle. One, the following to-do list is based on the manager taking on the initiative for the coaching but a lot of it is still relevant and applicable if the employee has approached the manager with a request for coaching in one or more areas. One, approach the employee. Contact the potential coach, she, and arrange a time for a meeting. You don't have to give a full explanation for the meeting, but it will help if the coach, she, is prepared to talk with you in some detail. Two, decide on a meeting place. Book a room in the office to guarantee that you will be able to chat without interruptions to meet in a cafe outside the office for a more neutral and informal setting. This may be preferable if the person you approach is particularly nervous or ill at ease. 3. Make observations. Calmly and slowly relate the observations you have made in the last few weeks. Begin by stressing the positives of the employee's behavior and actions. Then turn to areas where you think they might benefit from coaching. Insist that your suggestions are aimed at improving performance and sustained career development rather than on rectifying possible defects. All right, so decide on a meeting place. Like, so like if I have a coaching client, tell, tell the person to like go to a room in their house that they don't go to often that way like it'll be like a fresh uh perspective there like it'll be like a fresh thing so it's like a neutral feeling about the place so establishing ground rules for ask for feedback ask the employee to give feedback on what they have just heard if you are talking to a high achiever whom you want to promote the response is likely to be positive and you will be able to proceed to a plan of action fairly quickly if you are discussing certain problems that an employee is having with an area of her work you must give the candidate extra time to digest your observations the employee may become defensive even hostile be ready for this response and allow them to ask any questions establishing ground rules five 
arrange a further meeting. If there are questions that need a more considered response for you or the employee, and if the employee needs more time to consider what you have said, agree to postpone formulating an action plan until these issues are resolved. When the employee has taken on board your observations and is happy to proceed, move on to an action plan. Six, establishing ground rules, to coach or not to coach. The first point you need to agree on is that coaching will benefit the candidate. If the candidate is reluctant at this stage to accept the need for coaching, then you need to arrange another meeting. What to coach? Although you are not ready to establish the details of the coaching program, you can broadly agree on one or three areas of their work that will benefit from coaching. For instance, finalizing a sale, keeping records of account, or acquiring management skills. When to coach? You also need to establish the frequency of coaching sessions, the number of sessions, and the overall length of time required. Will it need a month, three months, two-day training session? Who will coach? You will be directly responsible for coaching. Will the employee supervisor? Will you be directly responsible for coaching? Will the employee supervisor? Are there advantages in hiring an external coach? Goal setting. Although you discuss goals when you laid out some ground rules, a second meeting is crucial to specify more clearly what the employee expects to gain from coaching. When a company imposes coaching on individuals through training sessions, the company goal has already been established. For instance, for a retailer, the objective could be to raise sales by 10% during Christmas selling period. The employees have no choice in the company's agenda. The most effective goal setting, however, comes when a manager and a coach agree together to set goals because the employee feels far more closely involved in the decision-making process. If the employee initiates the setting of the goal, then the incentive to achieve the ultimate objective will be even greater. What if the employee doesn't know his or her own goals? Although raising sales targets is specifically is perfectly legitimate goal for a company, it may be too impersonal to motivate an individual. If a coach and employee can work together to incorporate a personal element into the company mission, then the situation can be beneficial for both parties. For instance, an employee may decide that she wants to develop her own target for the Christmas sales period that exceeds the company's stated objective, but not purely for the sake of an extra bonus, but because she seeks a promotion to be head of the sales floor of her particular section. Immediately, you have two objectives. The literal one is to raise sales, and the second one is which touches career aspirations is to be giving a promotion. Not everyone, however, has these short-term goals either because they haven't been encouraged to think in terms of future objectives or because they are frightened or, or failure. Some questions for you as manager can ask them in order to help them define some potential goals are listed on the following pages. Goal setting continued. Short-term professional goals. One, are you satisfied with your current salary or do you think you deserve a raise? Goal setting. Do you two, do you think you were working do you think you were working for a different employer? Do you think do you wish you were working for a different employer? Two. Long-term professional goals. Do you see yourself still with your present company in five years' time? Two, what sort of role do you like to, would you like to be filling? Short-term personal goals. Would you like to learn a new language? Two, would you like to feel fitter? Should you join a gym? Long-term personal goals. Do you think you will remain in your current line of work? Two, have you ever wanted to go back to school? Goal setting. Once you, as a manager, have a range of the coach's personal and professional and personal ambitions, you can write them down and identify if the objectives can be realistically attained through coaching. These objectives need to be smart. Number one, specific. 
Can the employee define the goal in the brief phrase? For instance, could it be to become the head of sales in the department or to return to study? Two, measurable. Can you and the employee find out if the coachee has achieved her stated goal, for instance, by being promoted within a year? And three, attainable. How likely it is that sales rep will become the head of the department? Does she have a good track record? Are there other likely candidates? Four, realistic. Has anyone else suggested that she has the capability of leading a team? Time limited. Does the employee have a certain time frame to achieve the goal? Is she prepared to wait six months at, at, at least, but no longer than a year? If the response is yes to all five objectives, the goal that you and the employee eventually define can serve as an effective guide to action. Identify tasks to achieve the goals. Now that, a co now that coach and coachee have defined a goal, they are ready to discuss a plan that is going to make the goals achievable. They need to answer the following questions. Number one, what steps does the coachee have to take to reach her goal? Two immediate tasks can be identified. One, to, add, to examine current sales record and to aim and reach a higher monthly target. And to arrange a meeting with line manager about ambitions. Bosses cannot guess what aspirations employees have. Sometimes these have to be spelled out. Two, how long will it take to reach her objective? In the case of raising sales, you can suggest three months to establish a sales pattern. The Christmas sales, which are important to the company, also create a deadline so that the employee can strive to do well with it during the sales period and approach a boss afterward. Three, what aspects of the job need to be improved? This is where the benefits of coaching can be most easily be felt. The employee may believe she has a good knowledge of the product she is selling, but that her confidence in dealing with customers, particularly difficult ones, is rather low. She might benefit from coaching on customer service and how to be more assertive. On the other hand, the employee may be good at dealing with clients, but she needs to learn more about the product she is selling. She might benefit from more knowledge on the actual product, so training in product descriptions, finishes, and so on will help her to serve her customers' needs more effectively and ultimately raise sales. Motivating employees. Motivating others means stopping into the identifying the inner drive that compels them to succeed. Knowing what makes employees tick is a key skill for a coach because without the inner fire you want to achieve something, employees do not react and coaches will achieve middling results at best. There are some recommended tips for effective motivating. One, understand a wide range of desires. What makes motivating others difficult is why everyone has different reasons to succeed, even when they are members of a tightly knit team. The first step in understanding others is to look at yourself and analyze what makes you take at work. Be honest and write down at least one reason why you enjoy your present position. The following are common factors that motivate people in their, personal, in their professional life. 1. Solving problems. Some people thrive on facing a tough situation and coming up ways to solve it. 2. Being creative. There are many ways of being creative that don't involve literally working in creative arts. Coming up with initial ways of marketing a product or thinking of an innovative product line are always ways of being creative. Even introducing a new filing system at work can get some people fired up. 3. Helping others. People in service industries enjoy working for others and providing a, a service which they can see other people benefit. 4. Teaching. Passing on information and seeing others develop is shared by teachers, coaches, and mentors. 5. Researching. For many people, the thrill of discovering new things keeps them at their job. By understanding what makes people tick, you can better steer your strategy for motivating others. For instance, the person who likes being creative is unlikely to benefit much from a course in administration, and the individual who loves research isn't a prime candidate for training in customer service. Try not to be guided by what you think people should be like and learn from what is suitable for their type of personality and interest. 
Try not to be guided for what you think people should be like and learn from what is suitable to their type of personality and interest. Try not to be guided by what you think people should like and learn from what is suitable for their type of personality and interest. That's a big one. That's a big one. Try not to be guided by what you think people should like and learn from what is suitable for their type of personality and interest. Naturally, this can't be taken to extremes if a new software system is failing, uh, is introduced, and everyone in the department uses a computer. All employees will require coaching in the new system and regular technical updates. Don't reward bad behavior. There are negative ways of motivating others. For instance, how many times have you seen an aggressive personality who always interrupts loudly, getting his, in his own way because nobody dares to tell him to be quiet? Or how often does a new idea get knocked down by the office nitpicker who launches into a detailed criticism every time someone tries to introduce change? When managers fail to ignore these negative interruptions or try to put across an opposing view such as, well, actually, I think it's a very good idea, the people with bad behavior are encouraged to repeat their performances. At the same time, other colleagues who are coming up with the ideas, for instance, may be put off from repeating their positive efforts. Reward good behavior. Responding positively to a good behavior is important for a manager because it shows employees that you are observing their actions and that you are appreciating their efforts. There are several ways of rewarding good behavior. They include offering positive feedback, giving some measure of public recognition, offering bonuses or incentives, leading by example, listening attentively, and asking effective questions. We will look at each of these uh, in turn in greater detail on the following pages. Number one, give positive feedback. This is the most common way of acknowledging a good performance, although sometimes it can be done sometimes it can be done in the public in a moment of spontaneity. It is better to arrange a private meeting first, singling an employee out in public and cause problems to the person receiving the feedback who may prefer more intimacy and for others observing it who may resent not being the subject of the feedback even when they are also doing a good job. Second, a private meeting creates a more formal atmosphere when the person receiving the feedback can listen attentively to the feedback, ask questions, and if the manager is taking notes, receive some official recognition of good work. Two, recognize employee in public. Being recognized in public can be effective when it is done in a formal setting. For instance, in an end-of-the-month meeting for annual company award ceremony where other attendees are specifically present to honor and acknowledge good work. Traditionally, more common in sales industries than other settings, this approach to recognition can work in many sectors and is becoming more widespread. Three, provide bonus incentives. Financial incentives to work particularly work well in sales-oriented businesses but less well in service industries where the way to quantify performance is slightly more objective and can lead to resentment among peers. The most successful approach in these areas is to offer a certain percentage of salary or a fixed sum to all staff. This, however, does not reward those team members who have delivered more. Four, lead by example. Showing others how an assignment is handled can be a good way of motivating others, but a manager must not be seen by performing must not be seen to be performing well for an audience. The way of working efficiently should come across as genuine. Employees are far more prone to pick up the, on managers who are not leading by example rather than those who are doing a good job. So managers must be careful to practice what they preach. If a manager is cutting corners or missing deadlines, you can be sure that employees will be encouraged to follow suit. Five, be a good listener. 
Learning effectively does not only improve giving employees some set time to listen to their problems. The manager has to follow up with these listening sessions with more concrete evidence that he has taken on board some of the messages that employees were giving him. For instance, if an employee is complaining to a manager about the lack of opportunities for business travel and the manager does nothing to alter the situation or to explain why business trips won't be available for a certain period, then the employee will feel she wasn't being listened to however long the meeting was. Six, ask questions. Company questionnaires asking employees what they think about certain aspects of their work won't really be enough. A manager must ask personal questions in a setting where the employee has time to think of what she, he is being asked. This means setting up periodic meetings with employees. Write down any answers because it, will, it, it not only shows that you are being attentive, it will help you to remember what the employee's main concerns were. Delegating. We'll read this on the, on the next segment whoa 17 minutes delegating delegating means handing over authority to a member of your team to carry out the part of your job as a manager you are still ultimately responsible for the if the job goes wrong which is one of the main reasons why delegating proves difficult for some managers however there are some clear benefits for both manager and subordinates in delegating work one to motivate staff Handing over new tasks to subordinates shows that you trust their ability to take on new projects. You may be surprised by how positively staff responds by doing a good job. Two, strengthen team spirit. When other people in your team get involved with some of your tasks, some of your tasks, they can easily understand some of your objectives more striving, more clearly, people pull together. People pull together more when they feel they are striving for the same goal. Three, free your time for other roles. As manager, your responsibilities are numerous, and by farming out some of your tasks, you have the chance to focus on another pressing job that needs your special attention. Four, reduce staff turnover. Work out how many people have felt the company or the department in the past year have left. Have people been leaving because they are seeking responsibilities that they are not getting from you? Delegating can reduce staff turnover. Five, focus on your core job. Your job has many responsibilities, but at certain moments, there is one pressing job that needs special attention. By farming out some of your responsibilities, you have the opportunity to focus on what matters most for the business. How to hand over tasks. One, uh, identifying what tasks to delegate. The first steps to identify what aspects of your work you can hand over by writing a list of all your tasks and crossing off the ones that you are totally responsible for and will require too much coaching at this stage. For smaller tasks, analyze how much training is involved and in handing over the task. Also, identify how much time a coaching session would take. You don't want to put people off by overwhelming them with a responsibility that has to be carried out in a short time space of time. Look at also, uh, whether there are regular tasks that must be carried out in the wood require only minimal coaching time. For example, does a monthly report have to be created in a standard format? Once you have explained the template and where the employee can find the figures he needs, it is a straightforward task to hand over the writing of the report to the foreseeable future. Two, identify whom to delegate tasks to. This process demands writing several lists. The first one, the first is one of people who have actively been asking for extra responsibilities in recent months. The second one is people who have literally who are, are literally available in the next few months 
and not overcommitted in their tasks. Maybe uh, an expected assignment has been shelved or otherwise delayed and you have employees who are currently undercommitted. The third is a list of people who have the skills and the track record to handle extra tasks or who have the potential that you could develop. From these three lists, there should emerge a short list of names that appear more than once. That is your starting point in selecting candidates ready for delegation. Handing over the task. There are three main stages, the process of delegating, handover, monitoring, and providing feedback. Once you've pointed the task you want to hand over and who you want to carry it out, approach the candidate with a brief and whether he or she is interested in the job. Define the limits of authority that you are handing over. The candidate will need freedom to carry out the task, but you need to explain that the, financial the final responsibility is yours. Define a time frame for the task. Four, three. Ask the candidate if she or he requires any special training. Four, advise any other staff that the candidate will be carrying out the task so that everyone involved is aware. Five, advise the candidate of sources of information that might be useful as well as people who might be proved useful in undertaking the task. Invite contributions from the candidate on potential sources of information he or she can identify. Monitoring the task. It is always in the manager's best interest for the chosen candidate to accomplish the task effectively since a wise appointment reflects well on the manager, a task well done means the task member can, the staff member can be relied on for future assignments and staff will be motivated by the successful example of a future fellow member doing the job. To ensure you're providing sufficient support for the staff member, define brief. However obvious the role of assignment may be, it is worth defining in a sentence or two that you expect the candidate to accomplish and to establish some markers that are measured progress. The person with the marker, the person with the marker makes the money. Two, establish meeting times. Agree on the fixed time method during the day of the week, depending on the length of the assignment to meet up with the candidate so that you both have the opportunity to ask questions and to catch up and report on progress. Three, check training. If the candidate asks for special coaching, make sure this happens sometime in advance of taking on the task. Depending on the availability of coaches, training can take time to set up, even the candidate hasn't asked for training. Make sure you explain any methods or procedures that must be followed in completing the assignment. Provide feedback. The manager needs to tell the worker how he has performed and to instill confidence and trust, which the manager can make use of in the future. One, write a report. It is very useful to provide a written report describing what the worker accomplished and how this compared to the targets set by the manager. Two, analyze shortcomings. If there were shortcomings, point them out, but try to explain why they occurred. Overall, try to be as positive and encouraging as possible. Three, invite questions. You should encourage the candidate to provide his own feedback on the job of how well he felt he was supervised and whether he would like to take on similar assignments in the future. Four, identify training needs. The project may well have shown that further training would be desirable and if this is the case, discuss what should be done and schedule it in. If you want the employee to undertake similar tasks without shortcomings, you must ensure that any training is carried out. Employees without ambition. There are special considerations to keep in mind when coaching good employees with no ambitions. Who are they? There are some types of employees who simply aren't interested in furthering themselves, but nevertheless do their job satisfactorily enough. You as a manager could decide that it is best to leave these types of workers and focus instead on the high achievers who actively seek to advance themselves in the company and the problem cases who need to be coached if they don't want to lose their jobs. Why they are useful. For a start, steady employees who plod along in their jobs just for years are useful in many ways. 
they seem satisfied where they are and this satisfaction spreads to coworkers. They know the inner workings of the company. They may have a chosen to do a job that doesn't stretch them because they, uh, they have other ambitions outside of work and do not want extra responsibilities at work to distract from these. And they may simply be at home with the security of the situation they know. As a manager, don't underestimate how useful it is to have reliable workers who fulfill necessary functions and who are not going to rock the boat. Employees without ambition continued. However, if you have a lot to gain from trying to push these good employees with no ambition, there are some recommended steps to follow. Number one, court them. These staff employees have reached their positions by not making a lot of fuss and getting on with it. So they don't, so they, they won't be used to having a manager give them special attention. It's worthwhile not to give, not to ignore them because you don't want these reliable types to leave the company. Two, identify positives. Apart from being valuable assets because they do their job satisfactorily and they don't make any demands, try to think of other positive qualities they have such as being efficient at accounts or good at following up complaints from customers or good team players. Three, expand horizons. Having identified the positives, you can meet up with these employees, underline their strengths and action whether they would like to take on extra responsibilities that are directly related to their strengths. If they, tolerate, if they tolerate what they usually do, the chances are that they will be happy taking on extra work that plays with the same strengths. Four, explore training potential. If they are not so eager to pile on more tasks, you might ask them if they are willing to show others how to do their job, explain that they would serve as role models for other workers doing the same job in different departments you might tap into a desire to teach or to share their existing skills. Giving negative feedback. Providing feedback is an essential part of management because it is the most direct way an employee can find out how she is performing. It typically takes the form of a face-to-face -face conversation and occurs every six months, sometimes once a year or at key, st key stages of a project. Feedback is much easier when a manager has positive things to say about a candidate, but it is considerably more difficult when an employee is not performing to the best of her ability. The three most common consequences in this situation tend to be the manager puts off feedback session, but it is only delaying the inevitable. The manager has the session and mentions the criticism briefly, but to avoid confrontation, keeps the meeting short, causing only confusion in the employee who may seek more detailed explanation of the analysis or needs time to voice her own opinions. And three, the manager is so frustrated with the employee's performance that the focus is too heavily on the shortcomings without offering any advice or suggestions on how to improve or eliciting information from the employee on what training needs to be addressed. The following steps are recommended to ensure that a feedback session is beneficial to both manager and employee mainly by encouraging an improved performance in the future. The assumption that the individual receiving the feedback has underperformed, however, the same steps can be followed when a worker who has performed well. Do thorough homework. There is nothing more demotivating for the employee receiving criticism than an underprepared manager who makes broad criticisms based on allegations or rumors and without backing his criticism with specific examples. 
find out from other colleagues why the employee's work is considered unsatisfactory. In fact, be discreet. You do not want the rumor mill to go into overdrive. Two, no employee's personality. A manager doesn't have to know intimate details about the employee in question, but it is useful for the manager to have in general knowledge of the individual so that he can modify his delivery according to the basic personality type of the employee. Ask yourself such questions as, is the employee an introvert and likely to be silent during the meeting? Is the individual volatile? And do you expect him to lash back in anger? Be ready for them for a long defensive speech. Three, rehearse delivery. It is wise to write down the main points that you are going to cover and to look down the notes before the meeting. You could even rehearse quickly your delivery, even if only your head. You as the manager are the person who is setting the agenda and tone of the meeting, but you should not sound staged. Your job is to also listen to the employee's explanation for the underperformance. Given negative feedback, choose a private location. Never provide feedback in public space and certainly not in an office room in front of colleagues. Make sure the employee is warned about the meeting a few days in advance so that he has time to prepare. Book a quiet room and make sure that they are not available during the session. Get to the point. Once at the meeting, don't spend too much time on preambles. Be direct. Try. I have asked you here because I want to discuss your performance. You need to focus on one issue at a time. If you address too many concerns, the employee may feel overwhelmed. Six, avoid criticizing the person. When you go on to spell out the performance, dwell on the employee's actions or behavior that needs improving, steer away from any per personal comments or pointing a finger at the person. For instance, the report you wrote could be improved by adding more details on X. It would be clearer if a summary were added. It is much easier to hear, more specific and more useful than you aren't very good at writing reports, asshole. We expected more from you. <laughs> Seven, be ready for anger. A defensive response is natural in many people and you can expect some criticism directed at you. Don't respond in the same manner, even if you are challenged directly. This is an opportunity for the person to get things off its chest, listen carefully and take notes. Be ready for silence. Passive employees may curl up inside and sulk. The same way that you allow an angry person to vent his frustration for a minute or so, you could choose to wait a little for the individual to open up. Don't ask them immediately to give an opinion. Try to think a few open-ended questions to get them to start responding. Do you think that I have described is unfair? Only invite a yes or no answer. It is better to say, I understand that you may think that I may, that you may think that I have said it's unfair. If you think so, I would like to hear your side of the story. Suggest so action plan. The best action plans are conjured up together. You can try the employee. You can ask the employee what steps he thinks he could take you to improve your performance. Only if there is no response can you suggest a few options. Even in this case, let him decide which he could try first. You need the employee's collaboration to achieve success. You should never leave document conversation. You should never leave the meeting without a record of the conversation. The first reason is that in the case of an extremely angry and defensive employee, he may retaliate with a different account of the meeting, potentially using the distorted account as a basis for disciplinary action. In addition, a recorded document makes it more easy, much easier for reference purposes for a second meeting. Follow-up. After the meeting, it is a good idea to type out any notes and send the employee a written summary of what was discussed with any questions for improving behavior or performance. This is the time to arrange a follow-up meeting. Following up. Following up marks the final stage of the coaching process. Following up does not have to be restricted to one session and it is often more effective if it is ongoing. 
In most cases, there is one particular ending point to coaching, but a series of financial sessions that deal with separate issues. Why is follow-up important? Any coaching program needs to have specific time boundaries and a follow-up session that has been arranged well in advance, but it also must provide a focus for both the coach and the coachee to achieve what they set out to do. A final session gives both the parties the opportunity to measure exactly how much has been achieved and how it was achieved, what is still missing, and what can be done to fill the gaps. Three, the follow-up meeting also presents both parties with an effective motivational tool in an ideal scenario. Most of what coaching aims to accomplish has been achieved and coach and coachee can commend each other on having reached their goals. This moves the relationship forward. Arrange a follow-up meeting. They should be arranged well in advance, set a realistic date. There is no point in attending a follow-up meeting if the coachee still feels there's a long way to go on unless she is seriously stuck and needs the meeting to fix things. Two, write a review. For the coach, it is useful to refer to the original notes of the first meeting, example, the intermediate and final goals and tasks that were laid out and make ticks and any additional comments beside each of them. Three, be realistic. If there were several short-term goals required to achieve the one long-term goal, be realistic in writing your review. Some mini goals have been achieved, others may not. This does not invalidate the process or the way forward. Four, invite discussion. Whatever the conclusions you may have come to, allow the employee first to give her own opinion on how successful otherwise the coaching has been. Ask open-ended questions like, so how do you think it has worked? Rather than leading questions like, well, you must be pleased, or this is rather disappointing, don't you think? Five, agree on conclusion. Unless you agree to disagree, and this would happen only when the coaching process has failed, you can try to summarize the main results and benefits of the coaching session. Reset goals. Improving performance is never ending, and after agreeing a conclusion, the employee may decide to set a new target, and that may involve further coaching with you, the previous coach, or a new coach. Look at a coaching session overview. There is no single template for a coaching session. The shape and length of the coaching session will vary widely depending on the number being coached, the nature of the problem and the time available for the coaching session. Case study. Assume the purpose of the illustration, the case of new manager Brad Turner. See page 54, 55, 84, 85, and 106, 107, who has recently been promoted from sales executive to director of sales at a multinational hotel resort in a major business destination. Brad's line manager, also the general manager of the hotel, has requested that Brad attend a coaching session on the food and beverage part of Brad's overall assignment. He has given Brad three days notice to the session to prepare any questions. The session has been timed during the least busy part of the day, 8 to 9 a.m., to avoid as many interruptions as possible. Establishing a goal. The coaching session follows four main steps. Number one, establishing a goal. The goal's first mission. The coach's first mission is to instill a sense of purpose for the meeting by underlining the main challenge facing Brad. General manager, so Brad, we are here to discuss your main responsibilities concerning sales or food and beverage. I know we have other areas to cover, but we will handle those sessions later this week. My concern now is that the department has been underperforming. This is a description of the problem in brief. Let's go through the department's five main areas of revenue, room service, the real cafe, coconut grove, the Japanese experience and the criterion. This specifies the main problem areas. Have you ever been to consult with the different venue heads? This invites a response from Brad. Yes, I have talked to various heads and gone through some of the revenue figures of the last four months. Overall, room service continues to perform well and the Royal Cafe attracts a number of breakfast customers, both from the hotel and from the surrounding offices. But the Coconut Grove Caribbean drinks and dishes and the Japanese experience sushi bar are only half full on the weekdays and the Criterion is receiving fewer corporate bookings. It looks, it looks to me that we need to work towards turning around these last three venues and raise afternoon visits at the Royal Cafe. This, 
specifies further the problem outlining priorities we all need to seem to agree that a time of frame of three months is appropriate to evaluate whether we need to change the products and whether our sales teams are tapping the appropriate target customers does that sound correct seeking confirmation two raising possible hypothesis general manager at this stage what do you think are the main problems with the various venues don't worry i won't hold you to the answer i'm interested in your opinion it is important to start thinking about options brad there is only a hunch, but as far as the Japanese restaurant is concerned, a few Asian-style fusion eateries have opened up in the area if you, uh, in the recent months. General Manager, have you visited these other places, Brad? No. Three, inviting options, strategy, General Manager, it would be a good idea to visit them all to make a price comparison. Also, check the price of the clientele. In fact, it would be a good, good idea for you and some of your sales executives to do some of the same with other venues. For instance, how can many how can many cafes are we how many cafes are we competing with in the area? How could that be affecting the afternoon visits at the cafe royale a call for action making a price comparison new suggestion follows general manager have you met up with the finance department yet they should go through the financial statements of each individual restaurant so we can we can find out whether we're paying too much for a certain food products would you like me to arrange a meeting call for further coaching on financial statements would it also be useful to arrange a meeting with each of the restaurant chefs you can find out what their feedback is on the general situation yes brad says yes call for further action and information gathering wrapping up this is time for the general manager to sum up gm says so we've agreed on a timeline i've jotted down the men, uh, venues that concern us and i think you know what questions you want to be answered and i, I can, will confirm the meetings with the finance director and the food chefs by this afternoon is there anything else that concerns you if not let's agree to meet next week to find out if you are progressing how you're progressing this summarizes the main points while still inviting further questions from initiatives from brett in the same way that most people in the workplace never stop benefiting from effective coaching, so the people providing coaching never stop developing their own skills as teachers, trainers, mentors, and communicators. These are some recommended steps to follow to keep updating your coaching skills on the next segment. Okay, so improving your coaching skills in the same way that most people in the workplace never stop benefiting from effective coaching. So the people providing the coaching never stop developing their own skills as teachers, trainers, mentors, and communicators. These are some recommended steps to follow and keep updating your coaching skills. Number one, attend seminars, conferences. Coaches may be experts in their chosen subject, but there are always developments in their fields, and it is worth making a list of key reference conferences and seminars to attend in your city area during the year. Listening to other people in the field is a way to check that you are up to speed with any new ways of thinking, as well as a way to challenge your current thoughts and opinions, too. Ask for feedback. It may be intimidating to ask coaches for feedback in your sessions, but how else are you going to know what your strong and weak areas are? Encourage people you are coached to make any positive and negative comments about your coaching so that you can identify what you need to improve on and what you should continue to practice. Don't forget what works for one candidate won't necessarily work, succeed with another. Two, three, observe behavior. Not all coaches have the privilege of being able to witness improvements in their coaches unless they work in the same organization. Even if you don't work with the same company, try to follow up with any former coaches a few months after coaching session has ended to record what progress has been made. Buying and coaching. Why buy a coach? You are already a coach, but you have identified a skills gap. Two, you have identified an area for which you need training. Who do I look for in a coach? One, personal recommendations. Ask friends and colleagues. Pro, you know that the coach has achieved results and your access may be quicker from a world of mouth recommendation. Con, what works for your friend may not work for you. Your research may be less thorough. Two, 
conference seminars, attend meetings and seminars. Pro, you are able to identify relevant players in your sector or industry and witness their style, thoughts, and delivery firsthand. Con, some people are effective public speakers but less able to handle a one-on-one relationship. Three, internet search. Try conducting a search on your favorite search engines. Pro, you can shop, you can shop around regardless of location. You are also able to compare prices. Con, you may be influenced by the quality of the website. You have no direct recommendations. What should I look for in a coach? One, a specialist or a generalist. Are you looking for a specific advice or, for instance, a particular aspect of finance or computing where you need a specialist or for general advice such as decision-making or delegating work where you may be better off with a generalist? Two, experience. How long has the coach been training others? Asking this question doesn't mean you automatically prefer coaches with more than, let's say, three years' experience. You might also want to look at what sort of job the potential coach was doing before he became part-time or full-time coach. Sometimes his experience may prove to be the deciding factor. Don't be afraid to test run. Suggest a trial period with the coach. After all, the coach may also be testing you out to see if uh, the matchup works for both sides. Shortlist. Target a list of no fewer than three potential candidates so that you feel confident you are making an informed choice. Mentoring in action. This chapter looks at the different stages of the mentoring relationship from both the mentees and the mentor's point of view. The stages are broadly as follows. One, the conception. How the mentor and mentee find each other and agree to embark on their relationship. Two, the development of the relationship was involved establishing goals, challenging assumptions, and building confidence in the mentee in the relationship. Three, the closure of the relationship and how to make sure the end of the relationship is positive and not negative. U.S. mentee finding a mentor. With companies that provide a formal mentoring, choosing a mentor is the responsibility of your boss or senior management. In some companies, there will be a pool of senior executives who take on this role. The following section is aimed at people who don't enjoy this formal framework or even those who are in a formal mentoring program who are seeking complement their existing arrangement by drawing on a wider experience. Finding a mentor practicalities. There are recommended steps to follow. One, narrow focus. Before your search begins, you need to identify exactly what area of job or career you want guidance in. If you are a banker, you are interested, for instance, in investment, consumer, or international banking. Two, Read around the subject. Once you've specified your areas of interest, read as such possible. Read as much possible about the subject in periodical, trade magazines, and books. Note down the names in the departments of any senior directors in the field. The leaders who are geographically closer to your city will be the main targets, although there are examples of distance mentoring. Three, ask questions. Colleagues, bosses, and other people in competing companies can provide a wealth of information about some of the leading and up-and-up authorities in your area of greatest interest. Four, attend seminars. Attending conferences and seminars can also provide an immediate way of not just reading and not knowing about potential mentors, but actually talking to them. Five, join trade associations. Joining trade associations can be useful to meet senior figures in your sectors, particularly those who have retired from top positions that have more time to devote to promoting the industry and reaching others. Six, use official mental resources. The Service Corp of Retired Executives SCORE provides names and programs related to mentoring. SCORE also offers free email counseling. The Office of Women's Business Ownership matches mentees with experienced women mentors. SCORE, Service Corps of Retired Executives, call them today. What you, you ideally seek in a mentor, while you are taking practical steps to research the best mentors for you, including points such as the mentor available, does he have time? Is it useful to have the following list of characteristics of a mentor to compare with any potential candidates? Not all mentors can possess all these qualities, but they should have the degree of skill in the majority of the skill. This list will serve as a checklist for would-be mentors. One, high achiever. If you have drawn a list of potential candidates from some of the most successful or admired leaders in your industry, they are inevitably going to be high achievers, people who strive for the best in their profession tend to 
thrive on taking extra responsibilities and have unusual drive to succeed. Two, passionate teacher. Not all high achievers are effective at helping others accomplish the same thing, particularly the ones who are too driven with their own personal ambitions. Neither they are necessarily patient with those who still have a lot to learn about trade or business. That's why to find a high achiever who has the time, practice, and willingness to share their learning is fairly unusual. Three, people person. Some high achievers are excellent at producing results but still not good at managing people. An effective mentor must have people skills such as being sympathetic listener and perceptive about other motivations as well as the other strengths and weaknesses. Four, excellent motivators. Many high achievers know exactly what makes them tick and what drives them to strive for their best, but they can't necessarily goad others to do the same. Motivating others is an acquired skill and it is closely related to being interested in other people. Five, confident business person. A mentor needs to be confident in their own abilities and achievements to give her time and energy to helping other individuals without feeling threatened by the mentee. He must also enjoy actively enjoy seeing others improve. Six, excellent networker. One of a mentor's most helpful contributions to an individual who is starting out in the business profession is to introduce the mentee to other valuable contacts in the sector who can provide further assistance and possibly job openings. Seven, generous advisor. Because the majority of mentors will be directors or managers towards the end of their careers when they could be spending much more on leisure pursuits, it takes a considerable amount of generosity to want to help another person for no financial gain. Finding a mentee. You as a mentor, finding a mentee. The majority of mentor relationships, unless they are imposed by a company that deliberately nurtures the practice of mentoring, will spring from the mentee who seeks out the mentor. This doesn't ignore those occasions when senior managers decide to take a new employee with potential under their wings. The personal and professional benefits of doing so are numerous, as identified in Chapter 4 in such cases. Part of the decision to recruit that the individual will need mentoring, and this has been factored into the decision to make a job offer. Identifying a mentee, however, the mentoring relationship is a two-way dialogue between two people. Even if the mentee, in most cases, the initiator, the mentor should know that the ideal characteristics of a mentee are. Although not all mentees will possess all the characteristics, having at least half of them will significantly improve the chances of successful relationship. Mentoring relies on mutual respect, although being in similar types of people is not essential. Valuing the characteristics that each brings to the relationship is. Some of the most common character traits a mentor may look for in a mentee are outlined in the following pages number one ambitious business person high achieving managers are likely to identify ambitions in a fairly junior staff as they themselves must have shown the same drive to succeed when they started their careers two eager student just as the mentor should show all the best qualities of a good teacher so the mentee must be the student who is keen to develop new skills this may mean that the mentee will have less spare time to run in the danger of doing less well initially that he or she tackles new tasks three team player most Top leader, leaders have been able to work in a team while climbing up the corporate ladder and a mentee will ideally show the same ability to negotiate with you as a mentor and with his peers in general. Team playing qualities include being able to accept praise and criticism, being able to resolve differences between conflicting members of the team, identifying strengths and weaknesses in others and pointing them out to the team, listening to others' opinions, not being unduly influenced by others for the sake of personal popularity. Finding a mentee continued for risk taker. Mentees already show initial resolve and initiative with their decision to seek out a mentor. This lack of fear in challenging situations should be encouraged by mentors. Few top managers have reached their positions without taking some chances. Five, patient worker. A mentee must have realistic expectations of, of what he will gain from mentoring relationship. An individual who wants results too quickly or he's not prepared to endure an element of grind to achieve success will be a difficult mentee to work with. Six, realist. Mentees who show healthy optimism based on realistic expectations 
expectations and an ability to get up after a serious setback will be far easier to guide than candidates who have fear of failure. Seven, visionary. A mentee who needs to have a vision of himself as a success in the future. Most top leaders have had a vision of themselves, of a product, of a, or of a successful business. The mentee, matching mentor to mentee. Here are some practical steps for a typical mentee to follow contact potential mentors. Review research. If you follow most of the steps on pages 177 to 179, you should now have a list of prospective mentors with their telephone numbers and email postal addresses. Two, redefine goals. You should also have a written statement of no more than two or three sentences outlining what your objectives are. For instance, I am seeking guidance on how to use my sales skills to move into a senior management role that can also involve financial and administrative experience, which I don't have. Three, match goals with a mentor list. Rank the list of potential mentors in order of relevance to your statement of intent. Four, write emails letters. Write a letter to the top five candidates explaining what you are interested in in a relationship with them, outlining in a sentence or two why you have chosen them and including your written goal statement. Five, follow up with call. After a reasonable period of time, you can call the candidates to ask if they have received the letter, email, and wait for their response. Six, arrange meeting. Assume positive feedback from at least one candidate. Arrange a meeting. You can suggest meeting outside the office in a neutral environment. You should insist on paying for any coffee, drinks. Seven, approach meeting as a job interview. You should take any meeting with a mentor seriously and do not and do as much preparation as possible to give a good impression. At the same time, you are interviewing them, so don't be afraid to take copious notes. Ask about their availability, level of interest, career history. Don't be afraid to explain that you are interested in their input and finding whether they have they want to plan a second meeting with a view of establishing a longer-term relationship with you. 8. Be patient with response. High-flying managers are inevitably going to be very busy, so don't despair if a reply isn't instantaneous. In the meantime, send a note thanking the candidate for his time with a brief reminder of your objectives. Keep your options open. At this preliminary stage, while you are waiting for feedback, there is nothing wrong with arranging a meeting with another potential mentor. 10. Get written agreement. The need for a written agreement may seem somewhat Binding, considering what their relationship is just only is only just beginning, but a straightforward statement of intent doesn't have to appear threatening or to either party. Include such factors as goals, nature of contact, for example, will you meet face to face, or the mentor will be available to answer email or telephone calls, date to review relationship. In a formal mentoring agreement, follow this up with a contract. See page one ninety six. Formal meeting. When a formal mentoring relationship is established by the company, the following elements are often present. 1. Formal contract. An official understanding between the mentor and protege will outline the main expectations and obligations of the two participants. 2. Training. The company arranging the mentor relationship typically internally will provide the training so that both mentor and mentee understand their roles. 3. Monitoring. The company will have monitoring system in place, usually undertaken by a third party, to make sure both sides are happy with the arrangement that the guidelines are being followed. 4. Evaluation. The company will also provide an evaluation of the end of the mentoring program to summarize the main achievements and potential setbacks. Mentoring session for a new manager. What a mentoring session looks like. Overview. There are no typical mentoring sessions, particularly as the length and form. Mentoring session depends entirely on the length of the relationship between the mentor and mentee on the immediate ends of the needs of the mentee. Case study. In this example, the new manager, Brad Turner, has recently been promoted to head of sales at a major hotel chain, although he is undergoing a series of practical and technical coaching sessions with the various heads of the departments, he has one long-term concern about his career that he is unable to tackle during these sessions. As a result, he has asked to meet with a former general manager of a rival hotel who now works as a part-time consultant for an initial mentoring session. They have decided to meet at a neutral pace, the lobby of a hotel with no connection to Brad or his mentor. The session, identify a main concern, mentor. 
How are you getting me? How are you getting on in your new role? This invites Brad to talk about his current position, the immediate challenges and potential frustrations, and for the mentor, begin to gauge Brad's overall attitude for his job. Mentor, are you satisfied with the coaching session? Are you getting? If Brad shows he is fairly happy with the coaching for his new role, the mentor can ask another general question like, "Do you see yourself having sales for the some time? Have you thought of your next step?" Uh, I have only worked in this hotel chain, although I like the company and I feel I have made a lot of progress within it. I think that I might benefit from a hotel with a different approach. This specifies his main reason for calling the meeting mentor as a sponsor mentor. I could put you in touch with a couple of senior managers who have worked in different environments. They could tell you more about the challenges of moving across hotel cultures. The mentor as sponsor, pages uh, 214 to 215. Mentor as career advisor. Mentor, can I make another recommendation? Now, the mentor steps in the role of a career advisor. Why don't you take a few days to leave from your work when it is reasonable and spend a day talking to these top managers in the actual hotels? That will give you a better feel about your hotel culture. You will learn a lot in a day or two, and you might have a clearer picture of what style you prefer. Mentor is giving the career advice here. See page 220-223. Do you want to think about what option we can meet again when you've decided? Brad agrees. We can pencil in another date to discuss your progress then, giving the mentee the initiative. Informal. Okay. I think that's good for now. And that is... Okay. So, informal mentoring. Okay, which is more uh, informal mentoring, uh, which is the main subject of this chapter. Such an formal, formal guideline doesn't exist. Many elements of the formal mentoring process can be followed. It depends on the mentor and protege and how far they are willing to take the process. It is important to have a framework in which to work. There is unlikely to be a third party in this sort of relationship. Mentor and mentee will have to agree on the way forward. These are some suggestions on reaching an agreement. One, establish routine. Without a formal arrangement, it is dangerously easy for both sides to shift meeting times and depending on delayed deadlines or unexpected demands. Obviously, both sides have to be flexible, but it is imperative to try to stick to some time structure as much as possible. It is best to set a time of the week of the month that is mutually convenient to stick to it rigidly unless there is a real emergency arranged to meet at a given place either in the office or outside and make sure the venue is booked in good time if it is necessary to discuss expectations make sure that both parties understand what they are getting together the protege is best advised to put his or her expectations in writing and the mentee doesn't offer a statement the mentor can always draw these out by asking what does the mentee expect to gain from this relationship in the short and longer term does the mentor want to gain anything from the relationship or it is purely purely altruistic how can we work together will we have weekly bi-monthly monthly meetings what are your career ambitions three understand mentor mentee roles and appreciation of those of the main roles that can that each side also takes is also vital for a smooth relationship. See the following pages. The mentee's mission. The mentee may not always be aware of the roles he or she is expected to men- to perform under the assumption that the mentor has the real initiative in the relationship. These are some guidelines for mentees to follow. Number one, have a goal. As discussed earlier, the, as discussed earlier, the importance of establishing a goal cannot be underestimated as a way to provide direction and personal motivation. Because your mentor is not necessarily in your company and is looking at your overall development, you should try to be open about all your personal and professional goals, both short-term and long-term. Questions to ask yourself can include: Do you see yourself in your present company in five years' time? What sort of role would you like to be doing? Have you contemplated working on your own or a freelance? 
different spaces? Do you wish you were working for a different employer? Do you have you ever thought you wanted a completely different career but feel compelled to stay in your current sector because of the pressures of family and friends? Should you take off some hobbies to achieve a better work-life balance? To prepare, prepare. There is nothing more off-putting to the mentor who has taken precious time to meet a mentee than, than for the mentee to show up at a meeting unprepared and without an agenda. US MNT have embarked on this relationship and the least you can do is take it seriously. Show up to the meeting with a pen, paper, possibly a tape recorder. Make sure you review your notes after meeting and that you refer to the previous meeting and its conclusion. Three, reciprocate interest. The main focus of the mentor-mentee relationship will be the protege, but also, but that is no reason to that the mentee can't make an effort to show considerable interest in the mentor. Find out what projects the mentor is working on and ask a few questions about how it's progressing. The mentor won't expect to launch into great detail about his other activities, but he will appreciate your interest. The relationship can only benefit from mutual concern and consideration. This sensitivity may be essential later when you both have important deadlines that may stick into your agreed schedule more, t- more tricky. For communicate effectively. Being a good communicator involves effective listening, which shows you are taking on board the other person's opinions and informing the mentor of any developments you have made. Don't let him know of any don't let him know of any vital job interview two weeks after the event, for instance. Five. Show awareness of mental time. Particularly in the beginning of the relationship when both sides are testing the waters, you should make sure that the length of the meetings and their frequency are suitable to the mentor. Don't presume that the mentor has unlimited time to chat with you. An hour might be all he can spare in a week, and if that's the case, expect this limit by not extending it or arriving late. Arrange the venue for this convenience to cut down on travel time. Once you both know each other, you will know whether the mentor is open to longer meetings, perhaps over lunch or dinner. Six, learn to interpret. At the beginning of the relationship, your rambling thoughts and questions may require some steering by the mentor, but once you have started to gain knowledge and experience, you should learn to analyze issues yourself. Mentor's mission. This section provides an overview of the roles that a mentor plays during a relationship. It begins with a description of the four main mentoring stages. These exist in all mentoring relationships. A mentor can begin a relationship at any of these stages after determining the mentee's level of experience and basic needs. It is most common, however, to start with the first of the four stages described here. How long do each of these stages last will be different for every mentoring relationship. It is part of the mentor's and mentee's skills and judgment to recognize when the relationship has come to the end of the phase and it is time to move on. Typically, in most relationships, one phase overlaps another to a certain extent. One, dependency. What it is, the word dependency can have a negative association over over reliance, but in this context, it merely is a way of describing how the mentoring relationship usually begins the protege through the mere fact of being the younger and more inexperienced partner who is seeking help that uh, will be more dependent on the older and wiser individual, which is not to say that the mentee won't be talking initiatives or learning lessons quickly. The mentor's goal will be to ensure that this dependency decreases over a period of time until the mentee has reached maturity and is no longer dependent at all on the mentor. What happens? The mentor tries to pin down the protege's main character concerns and goals. Both are also learning to understand each other's expectations. This is the period when the mentor will spend longer, more concentrated periods with the mentee, trying to build up his or her self-confidence through attention and praise. The mentor will also be throwing at the mentee the greatest amount of information as well as sharing past experiences. Two, development. What it is. The development refers basically to the protege's developing skills. What happens? Having built the mentee's confidence, the mentor can now encourage him or her under close supervision to branch out and more on his or her own, ask more questions, and seek new experiences. Communications between the two sides is already more balanced and equal. Flight, what it is. Flight suggests that the candidate can take off in various directions almost completely independently. What happens? The protege is now able to embark on his or her own projects without the mentor acting mainly as a sounding board. Apart from encouragement, all other interference is minimal. For independence, what it is? The mentee is ready to end the relationship, hopefully in a positive way. What happens? The mentee is ready to confront new challenges completely on his or her own. The mentee may even be ready to start mentoring less experienced individuals. 
mentor roles. There are many roles as a mentor that uh, has to assume depending on the needs of the protege. Often a mentor may have to perform several roles at once. This next section outlines the characteristics and the main functions of four of the principal and most common mentor roles. Number one, teacher. When do you perform? The role of a teacher is far more prevalent during the dependency period as it is, as it is the time when a protege is spending most time amassing new skills. Two, sponsor. When do you perform? As a sponsor, you are typically creating opportunities for the mentee or reopening those for him or her through suggestions and referrals because these are specific tasks and they are more likely to be performed during the development or flight stage. Only after the relationship has been established and a several career goals have been set. Counselor. When do you perform? Like teaching, listening to the mentee's needs is going to be crucial in the early dependency stage although if the relationship is trusting and open the role of the listener will continue at the later stages but with less intensity as a mentor the key part of your role is to establish is to enable the mentee to draw on inherent skills and realize that he or she has abilities to fulfill new ones listening as she he or she works through situations and areas with you and reaches personal conclusions on the way forward it is important for the mentee's development you are acting in many ways as a sounding board for his or her ideas for career advisor when do you perform your role as a career advisor is a key to being a mentor and you will be tackling the mentee's career goals from the outset. Being up to speed on potential career paths that the mentee will follow is important to the success of the relationship. One, mentor as a teacher. Review job description. You need to find out if the mentee's current job is and write down a list of the basic requirements. Do the same with any future job which the candidate aspires to provide direction. You are not literally required to be a teacher or have knowledge of all the areas the prodigy needs to have. You do need to know, however, how to point him in the, her in the right direction. You might know senior colleagues who are experts in the particular field or know the courses, seminars, and conferences will prove useful. Three, share experience. Because a mentor is not prescribing a way of working, but rather helping the mentee find out ways to proceed, you provide a very useful service by sharing your experience with similar challenges. You might point out some of the mistakes you made and how you were able to turn them into positive experiences. Show the mentee that making mistakes is a part of the learning process. Four, test skills. You need to know how well the prodigy can fulfill his or her job. You might test the mentee by assigning a specific task that is related to the current job. Does the mentee actually pos already possess all the necessary skills? Are they transferable to a future job that the mentee is interested in? Do goals require more knowledge, perhaps a foreign, perhaps a foreign language? Five, provide insider tips. Much valuable information on the workings of companies and businesses cannot be learned in books and courses. This is particularly the case with the dynamics of office politics, which can present many inexperienced people with new challenges. Six, give feedback. Providing feedback is crucial. Feedback should be positive, regular, and specific. Make sure any criticism or behavior, not the person. Mentor as a sponsor. Fill the missing links. Once the mentee knows broadly what he or she is striving for and identify what skills or work experience are needed to achieve these goals, the mentor can help the mentee create a plan of attack to fill these missing links. For example, if a mentee discovers that he needs to complete an MBA to supplement his experience, the mentor can help him choose an MBA program by suggesting that he call any contacts that have direct experience with MBAs. Alternately, a prodigy might have completed an MBA but still lack crucial work experience and the mentor can refer him to certain companies he knows that are interested in MBA graduates. 2. Provide contacts. Knowing the right people to talk to is one of the most valuable assets for a mentee. With your considerable experience, you as a mentor are likely to have good contacts that will be useful to the mentee. You may offer to call these contacts beforehand or just pass on the numbers. In most cases, most of the effort and work should come from the mentee. You as a mentor 
the facilitator and not the doer. Three, recommended activities. Sometimes the only way to learn about a new line of work is actually to experience it. For younger candidates, an internship may prove to be the most viable approach because it is otherwise difficult to get short-term experience in a company. As a mentor, you can uh, recommend a placement in a company you know about and you at the mentee are based in the same company. You may suggest additional tasks at work that are not in the mentee's everyday job description, but what he or she will look at and provide feedback on it. It's important that the mentee is fully prepared for the challenge and the task is too difficult for the mentee the experience will discourage further initiatives. Four, share your working day. Assuming that you as a mentor are, is still in full-time or even part-time work, you can invite the mentee to shadow you for a day or longer so that the mentee can observe a new type of activity. Bring the mentee along to your meetings and work groups by following you. The protege can also observe how you interact with others and you can handle situations. In these situations, your role as a sponsor is supplemented with your function as a role model. Mentor as a counselor. Listen, this sounds very easy, but actually can be effective listening. It requires many skills. You have to remain not judgmental. Accepting a protege's values and opinions without imposing your own. You have to make the mentee feel comfortable about opening up about his or her problems and aspirations. Try questions like, could you be more specific as to why you feel this way? Or why don't you explain to me how it started? Or how often do you feel that way? You have to be more comfortable with silences. For example, if you talk too soon, the mentee is likely to break up his train of thought, especially if the earliest stages when he is more nervous. Let him express himself at his own pace. Don't respond critically to any emotional outbursts. The mentee shouldn't feel ashamed or guilty about any loss of composure. Concentrate. If you feel your mind wandering, try to think about the main ideas. Focus on the mentee's facial expressions and ignore the surroundings. Don't allow the note taken to interfere with listening. It is better to listen than, make, than take notes to summarize key points toward the end of the meeting. Be aware of the importance of nonverbal signs. These include appropriate eye contact. Don't let your eyes wander about when the person is telling you something important. If the person breaks down, however, don't stare intensely. Show that you are understanding by certain points by nodding or smiling. Try to keep your arms at your sides and not cross, which may suggest that you are on the defensive. Similarly, sit comfortably, but sit uprightly so that it's clear that you are being businesslike. Mentor as a counselor. Don't diagnose. It is difficult not to step in and give an opinion on what is wrong with the mentee's performance and attitude, particularly in the early stages of a relationship when the protege is similarly most confused in the need of direction. However, you must avoid these temptations and remember that you are not assuming the role of a psychoanalyst even if you are performing some of his functions. The mentee has to diagnose what is lacking in his or her performance and work with you to put it right. 3. Sharpen mentee's problem-solving skills. Learn people, value, people learn valuable lessons best when they work things out for themselves. Encourage this process by asking the mentee to write down at least three reasons why something isn't working and to list the pros and cons of each reason, of each reason to evaluate which one best describes the situation. Even if you have a personal opinion, keep it to yourself. Keep asking open-ended questions that force the mentee to constantly reassess the situation and to explore the different alternatives. Open-ended questions generally start with how, why, why, how, why, or what or a similar interrogative, and do not invite a simple yes or no answer. Mentor as career advisor. One, determine interest. It is not easy for many people, especially as they are starting a career, to have defined long-term goals. To help them out, start off by defining some of their interests. Ask questions like, what aspects of your current job do you most like? What activities do you enjoy outside of your office? If your mentee is still having trouble coming up with specific interests, get them to rank their interests in four broad areas, such as working with people, doing research, working with numbers, dealing with planning or strategic planning, strategic thinking, assess, assess skills. Are. So like now, that's one of my questions, like, what area like interests you the most? Doing research, working with numbers, dealing with planning, and strategic thinking. To assess skills, like a t-shirt, you need to find out what skills are the candidate has to promote. Like the 
sets of interests, people find it diff difficult to analyze their own skills for several reasons. They have a sense of modesty. They discount skills acquired earlier jobs or skills acquired outside the workplace. They forget other skills they learn but don't actually practice at present. Tell them to note down any skill that they have used in the last five years, no matter how trivial. Three, specify job accomplishments. When people have been doing a job for some time, they may forget some key achievements because they have become incorporated into their pattern of everyday work and no longer appear significant. Ask leading questions like, what are your three biggest accomplishments in the last three months, six months? What skills and abilities do you have to show to meet these responsibilities? What is your major achievement in your career so far? Identify tasks by discussing goals and what needs to be done to each that objective. The mentee now has to show a more clear idea of what skills he or she already has to help get to the future point and what areas of expertise he or she is still missing and what can be done to fill these gaps. Five, identify goals. Now that you made the mentee think more carefully about his or her interests and skills, it is easier for the mentee to define wider questions about mid to long range, long term career goals that may not be linked necessarily to the current job. Ask questions like, where do you see yourself in five years? Do you know what you will have to accomplish to reach these goals? Do you know other people who have had these goals and achievement? Six, monitor development. It's useful to record to review career goals with the mentee every three to six months to evaluate progress that check his goals and objectives that have not changed. Evaluating the relationship, it is important for both mentor and mentee to evaluate mentoring relationship, whether expectations are being met or exceeded, if both parties are satisfied, if either side is finding it difficult to pin down exactly why a relationship may not be working success successfully. These are some key questions that both mentor and mentee should answer honestly. Is there respect? Number one, you can expect to enjoy mutual respect from the outset of a relationship, but if respect doesn't increase over time, then there are a few chances of success. At the outset, the greater as respect is likely to come from the mentee who has specifically chosen the mentor for the skills knowledge and abilities for she like would like to have by demonstrating the will to succeed and the ability to take on board advice from the mentor the mentee can also gain respect from the mentor two is there trust trust is essential to a mentoring relationship to achieve trust there has to be open communication the mentor should feel free to challenge the mentee without facing hostility and the mentee has to be ready to ask a lot of questions without feeling that he or she is being judged and criticized both parties should be honest from the start without about what they want to achieve. Three, is their loyalty. When a mentor is in the same company as a mentee, it is vital that the protege knows that the whatever he or she may says about the present job in the company will remain confidential from other bosses and directors. A mentor should be remain loyal to this and not discuss the mentee's problems with others, even outside the company. Conversely, the mentee should not talk about anecdotes about former jobs that the mentor has related in private. Is there a partnership? Ultimately, the mentee is building up his or her own career and must do this as an individual, but while he or she is striving for it, there need to be elements of a partnership in the relationship. The mentor must now show excitement for the mentee's achievement and feel some involvement with the process while not unduly influencing the final result. The mentee can nurture this feeling of partnership by sharing information about key developments and setbacks. Five, has the mentee built self-esteem? It is inevitable that most mentees, even the most confident, will have issues regarding self-esteem, which is why they are seeking advice from a more experienced mentor. A mentor has fulfilled his role if at the end of a relationship, the mentee believes that he or she is considerably more valued individual. The mentor should provide honest feedback and encourage the mentee to develop skills that will result in, that will help the mentee do his or her job more efficiently and as a result, feel better about him or herself. Ending their relationship. 
the ideal ending. In the best case scenarios, you know, a mentoring relationship has reached a logical end. When the protege has reached full maturity to the point that he or she no longer requires the guidance of a mentor, the typical re re reaction is, I had reached a point where I was fully conscious of my responsibilities and the steps I had to take in my career. I had outgrown the relationship. And two, the mentor and mentee will wind down the frequency of their meetings. It doesn't mean that they don't meet the occasional lunch or coffee, merely that the relationship less intense, particularly from the point of view of the protege who has hopefully achieved many of the goals he or she outlined at the start of the process. The mentor too may be aware that he has outlasted his usefulness and if he has enjoyed the process, he may want to repeat the experience with another protege. Less ideal endings. However, mentoring relationships also end for less positive reasons. It is useful, uh, uh, it is useful to know these and to avoid them in either mentoring relationships or future ones. Lopsided mentoring. This happens when either a mentor or a mentee is spending far more energy and time on the relationship than the other. If this, if this scenario arises, either party should be honest with the other and point this imbalance out. Perhaps this the busy partner has been unaware of it and can offer proper explanation for neglecting their relationship. They may have to spell out their time commitments to each other and explain how they may have changed since they first agreed to proceed with the mentoring relationship. This is why drawing up a contract, however informally, is a sensible idea. Sometimes people have unrealistic expectations of what other person can do. Always allow a reasonable period of time for the busy partner to rectify the lopsided nature of the relationship. However, if there is little progress, then it is time to end the relationship. Clash of personalities. Sometimes it doesn't matter how much goodwill existed at the outset. Mentor and mentee possess clashing personalities and ways of working that only come to the fore when the relationship is in full swing. Opposing ways of doing things can be beneficial in a relationship where there are constant challenges and disagreements can have positive results. But when a nitpicker can no longer work in partnership with a big ideas person who isn't interested in details, both parties must be honest and mature and decide what the relationship has outlasted its usefulness. After all, the relationship is mainly voluntary and relations shouldn't be forced. Clash with a mentee's boss. In this scenario, it's more common when the mentor works in the same company as the mentee, but it is not the mentee's boss. The protege's direct supervisor may be resentful of the relationship, believing that her authority is being undermined. To avoid this, the mentee should update his boss about parts of the mentoring relationship that are relevant to his job. He shouldn't allow any advice about his ultimate career plans to interfere negatively. For ulterior motives, when a mentor or mentee enter a relationship with ulterior motives that are not directly associated with mentoring, then the relationship is being built on misconception. A mentor may believe it gives him prestige and have protege and spend too much time considering his own personal gain when the onus should be on the mentee. The mentee, too, may have chosen a mentor for his name or reputation without wanting to go through the sometimes difficult phases of being a mentee. If either side is suspicious of a hidden agenda, what party should try to bring it up tactfully? Avoid any direct accusations. Try instead to open-ended questions like are you satisfied with the way our relationship is developing is it meeting your expectations misguided expectations but both mentor and mentee can fall into a trap of expecting too much from the other party for instance an experienced senior director might expect a mentee to make far quicker progress than he is doing she may think that the slow progress reflects badly badly on her a mentee on the other hand may be expecting the more experienced partner to work miracles and provide a fast track route to advancement a written statement of intent at the outset of the relationship helps to iron out some of these confusions 
Six, mentor's jealousy. There are occasions when the mentor can become jealous of the mentee's professional growth, especially if this means that the mentee no longer elicits or values the mentor's input, or in more extreme cases, starts bidding for work than that the mentor may want. Three, colleagues' jealousy. When a mentor works in the same company as the mentee, colleagues of the protege who do not have a mentor may be resentful of the attention received by the mentee and the perceived road to advancement that will result from it. They can also accuse the mentor of favoritism to the mentee, even though they don't understand that they have a right to ask a senior director to become a mentor. This is less problem in companies that have a formal mentoring schemes in place where there is greater transparency in their relationship. Eight, professional boundaries. The most classical example of a mentoring relationship is becoming too personal is when either the mentor or mentee is keen for the relationship to become more personal. This tendency is particularly harmful for the mentor who can be accused of exploiting seniority and greater experience. Conclusion. Coaching and mentoring have become management buzzwords, but neither practice is new. There is a tendency for the new terms to be used interchangeably, and this book was achieved with the goal of setting the record straight and positioning them as separate practices that yield different results. The material in Chapter 1 serves as a ready reminder of what each practice is and is not, and most likely to be involved in giving and receiving. Although many individuals and most organizations understand their value, it is often the case that obstacles exist to coaching and mentoring. Chapter 2 is exploration of what these what allows you to focus on your organization and understand and remove some of these constraints. The materials in chapter three and four, highlighting the benefits of coaching and mentoring for managers and subordinates, demonstrate that both practices yield positive results all around. To enable executives to decide which practice or indeed whether both might meet their current needs, chapter five and six show that they, how they might work in practice. From the first management position to their last, all executives benefit from coaching, and as they gain more experience, most executives develop the coaching skills to pass on what they have learned to junior staff. A manager whose own skills are first rate can ensure that all his team's members benefit. The material outlined in Chapter 5 is designed to help executives at all levels evaluate their skills, identify gaps, and work towards filling them. Mentoring is one of the most effective ways that senior personnel can give something back to the business or profession that has given them so much. As a mentor, you may find that you reap enormous personal rewards, but mentoring is first and foremost an altruistic art act on your part. If you have chills, if you have uh, shied away from taking on this role, the insight of how the process might work for you or where your potential mentee might be coming from in terms of goals and expectations outlined in Chapter 6 hopefully will help you to reevaluate your reluctance and take on this valuable role. Coaching and mentoring are both about helping people reach their full potential. A coach has an agenda to teach and reinforce his skills and mentor allows the mentee to develop his or her own skills. In the modern business world, both contribute to a personal growth and professional success. All right, that's good.